Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Darren, hello. How are you? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm, I'm isolated. Um, are you, are you, are you locked down? We're 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 bringing our um, very unnecessary service um, for an, completely an, unnecessary another service. week. Yeah, it's yeah, very like important a, that this is maintained. Service. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, sadly, you you cannot go to the two fifty store at the moment. Uh, we're not open. Um, we are making services available online. It's a new shift for us. It's a new paradigm. It's a new day. My and joining local us on this new... chicken shop. Now forget about the guests for a moment. My my local chicken shop closed, um, and it really brought the crisis home. You know, um, it became real that day. Um, that moment of realization: the chickens had come home to roost on that day. Indeed, oh, but not to the not to the chicken shop. Oh unfortunately. dear! No, no. So. Sorry, you shouldn't egg me on. I'm a mad yoke, but that's okay because we have two wonderful guests joining us. We have the fantastic Graham Day. How are you, Graham? Yes, Thursday. Well, welcome, welcome back. It's Wednesday. <laughs> and and the sensational Breed Martin. How are you, Breed? Hi. It is in fact and Wednesday. Yes, it is actually Wednesday. Is it? So the, yeah. the t- is it? Oh God! Yeah. Oh God! Um, but it's okay because we're releasing this on a Saturday, so it's going to make no difference. But yeah, so we are continuing on from last week, doing our annual tradition of uh, anime, looking at the animated Japanese movies on the 250. So this year, we decided that we're going to do a very thematically linked dual bill. So, you know, the year before last, we did the two movies on the list that weren't Studio Ghibli movies. The year before that, we did, you know, the two movies that were released around the same time in 1988. And this year, we're doing Welsh-influenced movies that have castle in the title. So last week we did Laputa, Castle in the Sky, and this week we're doing Howl's Moving Castle. So it's very, very exciting. Howl's Moving Castle, for those not aware, uh, was the first big Studio Ghibli release after Spirited Away. Spirited Away was obviously the big Ghibli sensation. It's it's the big Studio Ghibli film. It was the film that won the Best Animated Feature Oscar. It was the film that is currently still the highest grossing movie of all time in Japanese cinemas. It was the film that helped Ghibli break out in the West. And so as a result, kind of Howl's Moving Castle kind of coasted off a lot of that. It was the movie that came out after that and kind of accrued all of the goodwill that was kind of coming from that. It was nominated for the Best Animated Film Oscar in 2005 um, after it came out. Um, It is currently the fourth highest grossing film of all time in Japan, uh, which is quite impressive as well. On release, I think it was... Castle in the Sky? Uh, No, sorry, House Moving Castle. House Moving Castle, sorry. Which castle? (laughs) There are so many castles to keep track of. Um, But House Moving Castle is an interesting one because it is... uh, it is a movie that kind of a lot of people, I think, probably saw when it first came out. It's a Ghibli film that kind of came out within my lifetime. It's a Ghibli film that came out within everybody on this podcast lifetime. So do we remember the first time that we saw this? Didn't all Ghibli so, movies come out within our lifetime? That's true, technically speaking. Yeah. Within our cinema-going lifetime. Okay. Oh, okay. That's Did they come out during Graham's lifetime, actually? Yeah, but Graham's a young tier. boy. Well, <laughs> like, My Neighbor Totoro was released in 1988, and we were both born in 1988, yeah. so... Yeah, probably so, yeah, I mean, you just missed Castle in the Sky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, probably, you missed Castle in the Sky, to be fair. Um, but yeah, so, to, to, but 
you guys would have been around in, say, 2004, 2005. You would have been familiar with Gibbons. If I existed. Did you, did you see uh, Castle in the Sky? Or, sorry, Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, it was, a, it was it's a gonna be a lot of time. time. It was a formative time in Graham Day's uh, young life. Uh, I remember I was only just discovering anime. It was a great time. It was a good time. Uh, what age was I? 16. 16. <laughs> 16. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. There, wow, that took a while. Uh, yeah, yeah. Listeners can play along at home. <laughs> um, yeah, you see. So what does that make Graham today? It makes The real question is, is what face. age is Graham really? <laughs> like, he's obviously just made up what age he is. If, I'm actually, I'm actually, that's not even, that's not even the worst of it. I'm actually just made up. Full stop. I, I remember one time trying to buy a children's bus ticket and them asking me what age I was. And I was so used to saying that I was an, an adult, which I wasn't either. <laughs> that I, and then they were like, so that would make you 18, 18. right? <laughs> I was like, it was a leap year. And, uh, yeah. Well played, Andrew. Well played. Yeah. Some good improvisation. Great segue. Great segue. Yeah. Um, but no, um, so you guys, would would you have seen it on first release? Would you have seen it at the cinema? Did you catch it at home? Um, uh, so I remember catching it at home because I was introduced to it by a friend and I adored it when I first saw it. Uh, it was absolutely, it was absolutely brilliant. The first experience, and I never get bored. I never get bored of watching it. I've watched it a ton of times. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. first watched it when um, Graham introduced me to a Ghibli binge, yeah. <laughs> where I watched about half the existing Ghibli films. <laughs> yeah, it's been my favorite since. Really, your your favorite of of the entire Ghibli kind of canon? One hundred percent. Like, oh, I, I, you're going 100%, so it's, it's like absolutely no qualification. Nothing comes close. Ooh. Howl's Moving Castle is it, basically, is what yeah, I'm getting. Yeah, I mean, I know what's in second place, but it's not a rival. Oh, what is in second my place? My neighbor told her it was probably Oh, second. yeah. Oh, that's, that's, I do that's, love a, that's that. a very good call. That's a... I watched my neighbor the other day. Yeah, we saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was having curry. Everybody's curry. watching their neighbors during curfew, Andrew. It's yeah. not unnatural. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Good set of binoculars oh. always helps. Ah, who's who's that woman across the road? Um, I, I've I've never actually seen Rear Window. Yeah, neither have I. But just seen the Simpsons episode riffing on it. Exactly. But Graham, actually, so you were introduced to this by a friend, actually. Yeah. Mentioned. So. Was it was this one of your gateways into anime then? If if like was this kind of a very early on film for you, a very like one of your first Ghibli films? Uh, this was this was one of my first Ghibli films. I want like I'm trying to remember the order I saw them in because I saw Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, sorry not Spirit, yeah, My Neighbor, sorry Spirited Away, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, and um, oh what's the other big Ghibli? Uh, my Neighbor Totoro. No, not My Neighbor Totoro. The one with the... Uh, Pompoco. No, that's not a big one. Nausicaa? On this I, podcast it is. I saw Pompoko, by the way, for the for the first time the other day. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, on Bobo. Yeah. Uh, no, it's the it's the forest one. Oh, why am I... Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. Pompoko. Okay. I, saw, I saw the three of them uh, very close together uh, when I was young, and they really stuck with me because they're, they're the ones that got me into Ghibli. Like, I was already into anime, like Dragon Ball Z, uh, Digimon, all that kind of stuff. 
but it wasn't until these films that uh, being introduced to these films that I really, really just dug deep into the animation and the story in that because, in my opinion, they're they're some of they're the top tier of anime out there. Yeah, you were you were you were a teenage boy getting gibbed out of your mind, um, yeah, exploring new horizons. Yes. It's Very good. no one can see the visual thing of just Andrew <laughs> staring at me with that smile. Uh, in, into your soul. Yes. Um, staring at you into your soul. <laughs> uh, but yes, so in terms of, of House Movie Castle, House Movie Castle is kind of an interesting film in the Ghibli canon. Uh, it is most obviously an adaptation um, of the book House Movie Castle, which was written by Diana Wynne Jones, uh, who is a British author. Um, it's notable because Ghibli generally don't tend to lean towards adaptations of kind of Western works in general. It's notable that after Howl's Moving Castle, they tried to adapt Ursula Le Guin's uh, Tales of Earthsea in what is generally regarded as being one of the great Ghibli failures, if not the singular great Ghibli yeah, failure. Yeah, I, I can't think of another Ghibli film where... Yeah, I can't think of another Ghibli failure all, uh, even close to Tales of Earthsea. Yeah, Tales of Earthsea is the only film that has a negative consensus on Rotten Tomatoes and obviously on Metacritic, mm-hmm. and it also did not perform particularly well at the box office. Mm-hmm. So Ghibli, you know, and again, Ghibli have done adaptations before. Uh, Nausicaa was obviously an adaptation of the the manga that was actually drawn by Miyazaki. Um, and, you know, they'd been influenced by other sources as well. They'd drawn from a variety of sources in terms of making movies like Spirited Away and things like that. But Hell's Moving Castle is kind of interesting because it, it kind of brings together a lot of those kind of themes and ideas that interest Miyazaki. Yeah, it, it doesn't really show. That it's an adaptation. Um, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's very, it, it fits very well. Mm. It does. That's yeah. true. But I think yeah. Diana Wynne Jones' style, her writing style, fits in Miyazaki's world quite well. She's she's very much of the fantastical, of creating these in-depth worlds that people travel yeah, between. Yeah, what's she known as? You told me what she's oh, the known. The Queen of the Fantastic. Yeah, she's yeah. the Queen of the Fantastic, apparently. But um, it's a character it, it in her book. <laughs> <laughs> But also the adaptation is apparently quite different. Yes, yes, it is. I was going to ask, Breed, have you read Howl's Moving Castle? The, Bizarrely, um, the... I, I've read a lot of her stuff, but I haven't read Howl's Moving Castle, although I'm going to put it on my list now for a while I'm in quarantine. Because <laughs> apparently um, there's two sequels, which I learned Yes, uh, And apparently inspired by the success of the film. Because uh, oh. obviously Diana Wynne-Jones had written Howl's Moving Castle. And apparently the one of the interesting things about the adaptation is that the film actually begins quite close in terms of tone, in terms of content to the book, and then kind of drifts off as Miyazaki finds his own interests within <laughs> yeah. the movie and his own interests within the story. And I mean, we'll talk about some of those when we get to the spoiler zone, but he kind of makes the story his own while still retaining a lot of the core themes or ideas of the novel, but he just approaches them in his own way. And actually, Diana Wynne-Jones, who notably was a big fan of the film she was she was invited to a special screening by Maizaki in oh. 2004 she was one of the first people in the world to see the movie mm-hmm. and apparently was deeply deeply moved by it uh, she admitted that it was wildly different from her text yeah. but that she loved it for that fact and in fact those two sequels that you mentioned Breed they're a direct result of this movie she was inspired Ooh. by watching the movie yeah. to go back and to revisit the world which is kind of very very ima- yeah, you know, very art exciting inspiring art art. I like that so when 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 Jones didn't get really angry at like the adaptation and, and make 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 her own movie like Stephen King did. <laughs> 
no Stephen King. There was no TV no. movie version of Howl's Moving Castle. Although, uh, to be honest, I think we may discuss some possible live action casting when we get into the spoilers. Yes. Because I have oh, a yeah. very strong, let's, definite idea. Let's not say who um, is in the cast, in the, in the dub uh, cast. Because this this is this is a thing where you, you don't you don't really I anyway did not realize that there was an actor in in in, in the in the dub when I when I saw this movie first. Yeah. No, my last experience of of this movie was the sub, so it it, it wasn't a factor. But um, yeah, we 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 had a guessing game today, Darren and I. <laughs> <laughs> with, with another friend of ours about about what uh, uh, blah movie we were talking about, um, uh, blah being the name of the actor. Yes. <laughs> something something. But yes. Uh, well, yeah. Then we we won't talk too much about the dub, but there's a lot of stuff to talk about there in terms of the dub and in terms of the kind of the Western influences. But actually, Bree, it's funny that you mentioned this as your favorite uh, Studio Ghibli film, and without any reservations. It is also Miyazaki's favorite of his own <gasps> films that he's made. Um, in his, in the first of his retirement press conferences, <laughs> there have been quite a few. And in fact, he actually still has a movie that's due in twenty twenty one. he's like the Steven Soderbergh. It was originally going to be a short. It was originally going to be a short. No, that that's a completely separate. Oh, one. for that the love of God. The, he's abandoned the caterpillar. Oh. That was going to be his first computer-generated feature film. He's now doing um, "How Do You Live?" I think is the the adaptation, yes. the latest one that he's sort of attached to, is which he, is based he, on a novel from nineteen thirty-seven. Sorry, he's Andrew. abandoned the caterpillar, and it's become all calcified, and there's people <laughs> living inside it. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened? It's a full circle, appropriately enough for the movie that we've discussed. It turns out Miyazaki's gone a full circle from Nausicaa. Um, the caterpillar has become a story of a caterpillar that everything else is living inside. But yeah, Miyazaki has kind of singled this movie out as the one that he's most proud of. When he retired or announced his retirement in 2013, he was asked which of his works he was most proud of. And most directors, when they're asked that question, say, I love them all equally. But Miyazaki <laughs> was just like, nope, Howl's Moving Castle. Definitely Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> And one of the things that he said that really kind of stuck with him about it um, is that for him, it was a f something that he wanted to make after Spirited Away. Something that he, 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 after Spirited Away won the Oscar, he was very conflicted about accepting an award from America, particularly with the Iraq war going on. And Howl's Moving Castle was from him an artistic statement, both about the Iraq war in general, but also a statement about the movie that he wanted to make in terms of making a movie that he considered to be not necessarily welcoming to American audiences, something that, you know, American audiences would go and see, but that was very much something that was his own at the same time. So it, it you know, having something that was accepted internationally and about something that was international, but was also very personal to him and very uncompromised from his point of view. And it's notable that actually, one of the ironies of this is that uh, Howl's Movie Castle was not even originally supposed to be directed by mm. uh, Miyazaki. Um, it was originally supposed to be directed by Mamura Husada. Um, and I'm curious, I think Graham may recognize the name. Yeah. Um, I, I actually can't think of the I actually can't think of it. Who? What, what's his other work been? He was, when he came onto the project, mm. um, he'd done only two films. Mm -hmm. He'd done two Digimon movies. Digital monsters. Oh, this is this guy. Oh, this. Oh, wow. This. Okay, I do know this uh, director. He's got his own studio now, hasn't he? 
Yes, he has. He's indeed launched his own studio coming off the back of this. He was brought on to this. He wanted to work on this. He had some ideas for this. But basically, he found that when he was working in Ghibli, mm. the directive was to make it like Maizaki would make it. Mm. And he didn't want to make a version of Howl's Moving Castle that would be like Maizaki made it. So he basically quit the project. And basically... That he kind of went off and did his own thing. And again, he's talked about how interesting this is because at the time, Maizaki, who was in his 60s, very close to retirement, apparently still very close to retirement. <laughs> but there was kind of this, this discussion within Ghibli and also within the Japanese industry and primarily as well also in the international film industry after kind of like the success has faded away about who was going to succeed uh, Maizaki. And kind of Hosoda uh, was seen as being one of the candidates to replace or to succeed Maizaki. Well, would I be right? So, sorry, Darren. Would I be right in saying that his studio has made films like Wolf, uh, Wolf Children, um, Summer Wars, uh, The Boy and the Beast? Would that be him? I don't know, Graham. I'm going to go to the fact machine so and sorry. check those. <laughs> you should have asked me, Graham. Yes, I should have asked Andrew. <laughs> yeah, Andrew like Dino. I, because I also wouldn't have known. Um... <laughs> and we're back from the fact machine. And yes, Graham is entirely yeah, correct. Yeah, this guy, uh, this his... guy was like an apprentice for a time, and then he, he's just kind of he has been seen as the next Miyazaki because his his films, which are uh, again other films that I would like to show Darren and Andrew through animes, are are, are films that I absolutely adore yeah. that absolutely resonate with me i've shown them to breed he is he, he's another one of those top tier anime directors that created his own studio uh he's he's still like he's, he's still quite young so he has so much time and uh work uh coming uh i ad i adore his work like it's amazing just to learn that because i didn't know that connection uh that he was going to work on uh house moving castle at the time i didn't know that part about his career Stay, stay, stay tuned for 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 next year. See, does does Graham <laughs> yes. get his wish? <laughs> Will we be discussing the Digimon movie? Sorry. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be even on? That's new oh no, it's definitely not on the two hundred and fifty. No. No. no, no, it's definitely not. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> 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 the animes for anime crush, films. Crushing dreams. <laughs> back to uh, back to Hosada. The the thing about Hosada and he's made this argument is actually that, yes, the idea. Oh. Hos Hosoda. Hosada. Sorry. <laughs> Who's on first? Oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. But yes, that's bad. The thing about uh, Hosada is that basically he made the point that yes, if you were to be the next Miyazaki, you wouldn't be imitating Miyazaki. No. And the idea was that arguably by moving out and founding his own studio, he probably makes a better argument to be the next Miyazaki mm -hmm. than he would have been staying within Ghibli and doing Howl's Moving Castle yeah. as well. And again, Howl's Moving Castle is, is kind of interesting in a slightly mournful sort of way as well, because it is chronologically the last of the Studio Ghibli films uh, on the list. It's the last of the anime oh. films on the list chronologically. Um, none of the Ghibli films released after this movie had the same cultural impact. Uh, earned the same level of box office returns, earned the same level of awards praise, um, or even made the 250 as well. And the sense in which Ghibli itself has come under a significant strain financially and critically. Uh, there have been some debates about what's happening internally at Ghibli, about whether or not it's kind of Maizaki is allowing other voices to come to the fore, 
whether or not the studio has a clear direction, whether or not it's financially profitable. Because again, this is a point in time at which hand-drawn animation is increasingly expensive. Computer-generated animation is getting cheaper, more affordable. Mm. And box office returns for hand-drawn animated films aren't necessarily good enough to justify continuing to invest in those. I and blame so Disney. Kind of... Well, no, Disney, Disney came to the same crossroads with, um, with The Princess and the Frog. Yeah, that was the last like, one the they princess... did. Yeah, and that was only a couple of years after this as well. So there's a sense of like there was a kind of a changing tide in cinema. It's notable that this year, the year that Howl's Movie Cast was nominated for the Best Animated Film Oscar, it was nominated opposite um, Wallace and Gromit and The Curse of the Were-Rabbit um, and also The Corpse Bride. Um, but it was basically, mm. I think, the last year before a primarily computer-generated film was nominated. It was the last year that we've had where there wasn't at least one heavily computer-generated animated film um, in that kind of list, in that end-of-year list. So it's kind of striking in, in that regard as well. So it feels very much kind of like the end of an era to a certain extent. Uh, but yeah, before we move on, Andrew, had you seen Howl's Moving Castle before we got to I had, I had seen Howl's Moving Castle. I had seen a different version of it. I had seen the dub, and uh, this this time I saw the sub. Um and I I I enjoy I enjoyed both both times. I think I forgot quite how good it was. <laughs> um, it is a tremendous movie, and it's so charming mm-hmm. um, throughout. And and it, it it's it's interesting as well to talk about because of the um, I think thematically there's going to be a lot of. Um, uh, touch points i guess that we've that we've got to that we've got to speak on when we're talking about miyazaki um movies so um no yeah that um this was this was i think my second time watching it um, this was actually my first time watching it. Oh. I'm almost oh. ashamed to admit. Um, I did watch it three times. I have watched the <laughs> I've watched, I've watched the dub, I've watched the sub, I've watched the dub with the subs as well for the combined effect as well. Uh, yeah, and absolutely kind of swept away with it. It was It's an entirely magical film. And I think there is a lot to talk about in terms of what Andrew said. I think it's, it's interesting as well in terms of it is very much a Maizaki film, but it feels slightly different from the other ones that I've mm. seen. It feels, it has this kind of, it is very much a Maizaki film through and through, but it's almost like you're looking at it through a different lens or from a different angle. And again, we talked a little bit last week when we talked about Castle in the Sky, about kind of the way in which Maizaki is kind of influenced by European filmmaking, by European storytelling, by European themes, European ideas, European iconography and stuff like that. And this feels very much like it kind of fits with that because it's him taking a story, you know, by, a, by an author um, and kind of telling it in his own way and getting this kind of almost juxtaposition between the two styles in that it feels, I think, as as Breed said, it feels almost like you're watching a Maizaki template applied to something that isn't quite a Maizaki story. And so you get a kind of an interesting balance uh, between the two there. Well, I'm, I mean, like it, it, it has the same sort of steampunk aesthetic of, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Nausicaa or um, Laputa Castle in the Sky and the same sort of the the sort of Welsh inspiration of 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 Laputa, the same kind of creepiness of um, Spirited Away, um, yeah. yeah, like like, like um, it's it's a it's a it's a heady cocktail. It's very it it feels it feels very um, yeah. very Miyazaki. Yeah, I I just think that kind of watching it, kind of some of the emphasis seemed a little 
and I don't want to say odd because that sounds like I'm dismissing it, a little bit more, a little bit shifted slightly from what I would expect from the Maizaki films that I've seen. I suppose um, we hinted last week at the kind of, at the difference that this represents in, in the Miyazaki canon in terms of yeah. the, yeah. Um, Actual content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the, the um, or even genre, relationships. Arguably. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose... Um, Stop the podcast. Listen to last week's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Um, bef- I guess then we're all kind of aching to get to the Spore Zone, and I suspect <laughs> listeners probably are as well. So we're going to do the three-round question. So to kick us off here, so Graham, you go first. Hello. Do you think that Howl's Moving Castle belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, it is a wonderful film. Um, it is a beautiful film, and... I adore it more and more every time I watch it. And since Bree kind of like seeded this in terms of <laughs> in terms of your own Ghibli rankings, how Ooh. does this fall? Is this at the top? Is this in the middle? Is this at the bottom? You don't have to give an exact numerical. No, ranking, yeah, uh, like, yeah. I'm just I'm going through the Ghibli now. I think yeah, it is. Yeah, it is my it is my favorite as well. Um, oh, it was uh, a. <laughs> Uh, this was not a litmus test or anything, but it was early in breed and my relationship and I was showing her everything that I loved and, you know, my heart kind of soared when breed, breed was very happy when she saw this, like when we get into the spoiler, when we get into the spoiler zone, it's just going to be very funny. Just kind of just remembering, uh, you know, how much just breeds re- reactions to things because breeds very much in a, a fan of fantasy it's her favorite genre so to show her one of these early on an anime that dealt with fantasy like this western fantasy uh was was twofold a lot of fun you, you know I, I i adore uh i adore it for many reasons from being a film fan from being an animation fan um there's, there's a lot of things in this film that just i, I adore so yeah it would definitely probably it, yeah it's definitely my number one Listeners can't see this, but Graham has a nice log fireplace in the background that I've only just noticed. Um, but yes, so, Breed, what about yourself? He does. Do I? No. Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> Damn it! You made them look. No, but the, no, but the weird, the weird thing is there's a log with, fire like... in front of us. Yeah, that's the worrying thing. That's the worrying thing. So I thought you had somehow seen through our camera. I did like that I made you look behind yeah, you. Yeah, it's like yeah, as if you were being it. menaced very slowly by a creeping log fire. The first part is we can actually see ourselves on the screen anyway. Yeah. yeah. So there was no need for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Reed, uh, yourself, do you think that this belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Graham, stop shaking your head. <laughs> um, my answer is pretty obvious at this point. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Andrew. Yeah, I'd 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 agree with this being on the on on the two fifty. Um, it's um it's a lot of fun and it's uh it's delightful. There's so many uh memorable characters in it. Um, he creates this magnificent world. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. And Darren is apparently going to be the voice of dissonance, disagreement here, but only <laughs> barely. Um, no, I, I actually like again 
I love Howl's Moving Castle. We get to the next question. We'll talk about that. In terms of it being on the 250 greatest movies ever made, again, it's a highly arbitrary list. I'm not entirely sure how you judge it. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that there's at least like 120 movies on there that are worse than this movie that we're talking about right now. But at the right. same time, if you're talking about if you're talking about films, you know, of in terms of Ghibli, in terms of animation and stuff like that, I'm not entirely sure that, you know, it's the Ghibli film that has had the biggest cultural impact or the, the most defining influence, you know, or it's the one that kind of charted the way going going forward um or it's even the culmination of these themes you know i'm not entirely sure that how i would compare to putting it on a list that you know as compared to say you know nausicaa which is on there spirit away which is on there um you know even grave of the fireflies which is also on there as well so i'm not entirely sure i'd argue that it should be on on the list although mm. i certainly don't have a problem with it being there and i'm glad that i got to watch it because it was mm. so second question Graham, would Howl's Moving Castle be among your 250 favorite movies ever? Your uh, own personal list. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, we always had that discussion of, you know, you're trapped in an island, you have only 250 films. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I would, I, I'd be very happy to have this here. I'd be very happy island to have this. is made of films. This island is just a lot of cinema, and I'm just like, oh, sweet. So I love the idea. I love the idea of Graham sitting on the island going, I really wish I wished for some food. <laughs> yeah. You're <laughs> all this time and no before you see all the movies. Yeah. Um, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and Breed, I think we already know the answer to this, but what about yourself? Would it be on your favorite 250 movies? It ever? definitely would, yeah. yeah. And Andrew? And this is a monkey paw with 250 fingers. <laughs> <laughs> And then at the very end, you're left with a middle finger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I mean, I don't know if I would or, 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 or not, but but yeah, I, I, like, um, I, I, I would have no problem with it being on my 250. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> I, would, I love how, how like assertive you are of your own 250. It's like, if somebody were to put it there, well, I certainly wouldn't move it out of there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would be like Darren, Darren would right. say, hey, Andrew, I've, I've put this movie on your 250. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, sure. like, whatever. <laughs> Listen, man, I have another 249 films. So I'm fine. <laughs> I'm busy enjoying being outside. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew says that he drives off in the Ferrari that we buy with the advertising. Why don't you put it on your own 250? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to. Yeah. I've already filled my 250. I've started using your 250 for space. <laughs> you weren't using it anyway. Um, yeah. Welcome to the inside <laughs> the operation. <laughs> Picking up my cigar yeah. butts. And... <laughs> but yes, um, I love <laughs> Why do I get the sense I'm the Jack Lemon in this relationship? <laughs> Sadly. Uh, but yes, um, on, on my own personal 250, actually, probably a good chance of it. I'm yeah. hesitant to do it given I've o literally only just watched it. But yes, I absolutely yeah, but, adored this movie. Yeah, but um, Darren, you've watched it three times. <laughs> you haven't yeah, watched it yes, once, right, you've watched it three times. Sometimes you need time to process a film um, to mm. know how you it fits in yeah. to your Just saying three times. Because it's <laughs> three times in the space of like 24 hours. So it doesn't yeah, really count. Yeah, that's not time to digest. That's, yeah, yeah it's, it's mostly just brainwashing. I'm fairly sure if I watched, you know, Suicide Squad three times in 24 hours, I'd be no, like, no. yeah, give Jared Leto the Oscar. You, um, you saw no, Cats I mean, three times. No. I did see Cats. <laughs> not, not, not in the same 24 hours. I knew you saw it twice. You oh, saw it three damn. times. 
<laughs> he tried to it. claim he had seen it twice. <laughs> well, I, do you, I imagine you don't count the the press screening. You didn't count that. Oh, I do. I do. I do count the press. Oh, you do. Okay, so that makes it that makes it to three. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that makes it three. So and then he paid for it I twice. Paid for. Oh, I did pay da- for it twice. Darren, Darren, <laughs> you don't pay for cats. <laughs> okay. They generally right. just show up in your yard and uh, tell you that they're yours. Don't, don't yeah. put cats there. <laughs> um, Especially those Netflix cats. taught you nothing. Yeah, has Netflix <laughs> taught me nothing? Um, but you know, Hell's, Hell's Castle, absolutely. The thing is, I'm kind of hesitant in terms of it's been years since I've seen Spirited Away, which I remember loving. I also remember liking Nausicaa a great deal, and Totoro is fantastic as mm. well. Again, you could argue that I should probably have all of them on my list, and that's probably fair <laughs> as well. But in terms of like Howl's Moving Castle, it, having watched it three times, it's a movie that and again, we'll probably talk about this when we get to the Spore Zone, it's a movie that I feel like I feel more than I understand, if that makes sense. It's a movie that actually genuinely kind of affected me emotionally which is, you know, yeah. relatively rare given I am a robot <laughs> programmed to generate movie opinions. Um, I didn't cry Graham or Andrew, because I know that question's coming up, but I did kind of, I did you know, I felt something yeah. You know what, Darren, in my log fire having, having, having emotions is normal, but um, not everyone responds in, in the same yeah. way to, to, to the same things, and that is normal, too. We have a lot of fun here on the 250. Once we get <laughs> but, to the spoiler uh, zone, I'm genuinely curious to know what scenes you think someone would have cried at. No, that's I, fair I, I as well. Seen. That's fair as well. Okay, well, we'll oh, deal with that. Okay. <laughs> All right, and now, now, now we're just hurtling towards the spoiler zone. <laughs> so, Graham, yeah. if listeners have not watched uh, Howl's Moving Castle, and keep in mind that if you're in, if you're listening to this podcast in Ireland, the UK, it's available on Netflix. You can stream it right now. If you are in the States, it's available on Vudu, Google Play, wherever good movies are available to purchase digitally online. It's on, so it's no on HBO in the States as well. Oh, it is oh, on so HBO Max, I, the new app that's coming as well. I yes. think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen the HBO Max ads? They're amazing. Yeah. Is yeah. It a- so it's a picture. It's a picture of um, it's a James Gandolfini um, and Chandler Bing. Uh, sorry, no. Hold on. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. It's, bizarre. Yeah. It's it's a, so it's a picture butter, of Tony butter Soprano. Bing, butter Bing. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, no, it's, it's, the it's where Butter Bing Bang. Okay. Graham, it's, so it's a picture of Tony Soprano, yeah. it's a picture of Matthew Perry as Chandler Bing, yeah. and it's a picture of Sheldon from The Big Bang. He has and a it's name. Where Bada, it's where Bada meets Bing meets Bang. Mm. Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Yeah. And it's I was like, I... <laughs> yeah, I, look, you could actually like hear Breed skin crawling. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So it's the Big Bang Theory, really? It's on HBO Max, yeah. apparently. It's but on it... HBO Max, it's a Warner Brothers show. I did not know it was a Warner Brothers show. Oh, but like HBO have, have lots of good shows that people don't, <laughs> don't get to watch. Like, when have you ever turned on the television and Big Bang Theory isn't on? Or Friends, for that matter. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah, like, 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 yeah, surely they should be, I don't know, promoting um, Sopranos or The Wire. The Wire or, um, I suppose all these things uh, are... Um, every now and then they're on um, like Sky Go and Sky that sort Atlantic. of thing as well. But, mm. uh, anyway. 
there was there was a bit of a backlash to it in terms of putting Tony Soprano next to the Big Bang Theory and Friends. I don't mind. I think it's a, I think it's perfectly fair. I think it's nice to have a range of TV shows that appeal to everybody. You've got The Sopranos for people who like kind of prestige television. You've got Friends for people who like nineties nostalgia. You got The Big Bang for people who like The Big Bang. Uh, but anyway, to get back to the question <laughs> we're going to ask, Graham, would yeah. you recommend people pause the podcast, stay at home, and stream? House Big Bang Theory? No, not at all. Uh, Bazinga! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Bazinga! Oh, God damn it. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's a brilliant film. And yeah, just, yeah, watch it. Just <laughs> simple as. Just goddamn watch it. <laughs> and breathe. Would you, would you echo that with similar force and passion? Stop right now and watch it if you haven't. Oh, that's even there. worse. Is that that's better? A, that's even more threatening. <laughs> that, that that's, that's, I don't think we've ever actually literally had a guest say, no, stop listening right now. What are you doing? <laughs> You're wasting your life. Go put on this movie. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, yeah. You you, you, you have my strong recommendation. As if Breeze <laughs> wasn't enough. See, now, now, his, yeah. see, now Andrew's sounds like a politician. Yes, I approve this message. <laughs> I agree with I agree, actually I second Andrew's observation that my recommendation seems redundant after breeds um, <laughs> cutthroat like, cutthroat like, just like do it and if the English like, see like it do it I feel like if they were going to pause the podcast and watch the movie they already have so this is just pointless exactly point. but this Nothing is for them can... when they come back and well done yeah. well done everyone who went away and listened to it and came back all this fury in such a tiny frame uh-huh. Uh-huh. But also fury, yes. happiness and pride in their good judgment. Oh dear, <laughs> I I would absolutely uh, recommend watching this, particularly if you are somebody young or somebody who has kids as well. I kind of miss the fact I didn't see this as a kid, although I think emotionally when I watched it, I was almost like a kid. Mm. So I can wholeheartedly recommend uh, pausing this, watching it, and then coming back and listening to the rest of our discussion on the other side of the spoiler zone. Yeah, it's it's probably getting late by the time you've 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 watched it depending on what time of the day it is and now you, and, and, and now you might want to want to go to sleep but first you need something to, to, to no 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 i'm sorry it's only me who listens to podcasts to go to sleep i do only when I'm not there, though. Yeah, only when I'm, only when Breeze. It's the very room. annoying. I have to wake you up to turn them off. <laughs> it defeats the purpose. I'm serious. I do that. <laughs> All right then. Spoiler zone. <laughs> <laughs> so Breed. So Breed. What is Howl's Moving Castle about for you? Uh, it's. It's funny because I, I view it as several different things at this point. When I first watched it, um, it I, I just, I instantly just connected with it and the world. And it wasn't until much later that I found out it was based on a book written by an author I was already a fan of at that point. I just didn't realize she had written that. And I was like, oh, that's why it's familiar. Um, <laughs> But uh, interestingly, I I was curious about, as an adaptation, you know, what was similar, what was changed. And um, uh, so I contacted a friend who I know has read this and seen it. And the characters and the world are exactly the same. They just changed the plot. (laughs) Hmm. Like, they used elements of the plot, but just shifted it entirely to deal with 
completely different themes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm not going to pretend I've read the book or anything like that, but I've read commentaries on what it changes. And, like, to give an example, the war, which is a major plot point mm. in the film. It's a major event and kind of inciting incident. And it drives a lot in the action, even if a lot of it unfolds off screen, which I think we'll talk about maybe a little bit later on. But that aspect is just a background detail uh, in a couple of chapters of the novel, for example. It's just one tiny little detail mm. um, in the novel that's kind of buried there and isn't really kind of explored or developed. And it ends up becoming this all-encompassing part of the movie as well. And I think that's in large part because, again, that's a Maizaki type theme Mm. because it gives you airships and destruction and mankind's folly and how doomed we all are as a race because we'll destroy the planet and each other along the way as well. And isn't it all futile and we're all going to die? I mean, I'd like to say this is the least of his films that do that. Really? I think so. Really? I think so. It's not that much. It's not compared to every other film. This is the least he uses it. Well, really? on, Graham, when you say least, yeah. when you say least, do you just mean in terms of quantity as opposed to thematic weight? Like no, no, thematic it, weight. It's uh, thematic weight. I would say it's not as heavy as he as that. I would say it's anti-war. Uh, it's funny that you actually, when you told, when you were talking about how you know this was after he had won his Oscar, he had felt uh, almost like boycotting America. Um, I immediately start, I started to connect the dots of oh yeah, this is an anti-war film. I mean. I I I take films most times because obviously I'm not smart enough at face value. So when you told uh, me that, so when I when I I just immediately started connecting the dots, and I would say it's more anti-war and less about our impact on nature and the world, which is more so what most of his films are. I would say this is more anti-war about trying to find peace and you know also the fact that the loss of life is incredibly meaningless when it comes to uh what happens during these horrible uh, events i mean it's encapsulated in one perfect scene involving uh the king and uh the solomon the lead sorceress and uh, hal himself in the in in her uh, room i would say that encapsulates a lot of it pretty well i was just thinking that it it seems to me that the um that the anti-war message is kind of encapsulated within his environmental message because it's not to say that as well yeah it's not so much that this war is is killing everyone it's that it's destroying the world like we see the 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 um the places where 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 the war is happening and then where the places where the um and and they're just complete like smoking wastelands and then you have these 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 beautiful places where war is starting to 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 encroach, encroach. and yeah and to upset the kind of natural beauty and um kind of yes it does kind of traumatize the the, the people of that yeah the, the 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 people living in those places like in 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 Laputa there's a lot of kind of um violence and militarism and and even loss of life but it 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 never seems as much to the kind of the we d- we don't we don't get as much of a sense of it um, affecting the 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 landscape maybe as 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 we do here like people people um, the desolation I guess sorry um, uh, Bridge you you were you were kind of think thinking thinking something similar yeah I think. Every, every single one of those aspects falls under the general blanket of people are destructive. 
whether it's war or it's environmental damage or any of his various regular themes, it's people cause destruction. And don't is the basic message. <laughs> uh, it is worth noting, actually, that what's interesting about Howl's Moving Castle, and this is in part uh, largely because... Um, the movie came after Spirited Away and because it was such a big deal and because there was such a big push, it got a large kind of backing from Disney. And we'll talk about some of that backing it got in terms of the dub because the dub is extremely lavish, mm. even by the standards of kind of Studio Ghibli dubs and directions and reworking and rewriting and stuff like that. But it also got a big uh, push, whether from Maizaki himself or uh, from Disney in terms of publicity. Uh, Maizaki is a famously... Um, kind of reluctant interviewee. He doesn't mm. like giving interviews. Um, and when he does, they tend to go off in directions that he particularly wants to talk about. We mentioned that a bit when we talked about um, Nausicaa and kind of his interests <laughs> when talking about that film and kind of what he wanted to bring to interviewers' attention and stuff like that. But he ended up doing a lot of press um, for Howl's Movie Castle, which, to be fair, probably makes a great deal of sense uh, given how popular kind of it was or how kind of how popular, how much he loved it. And it's kind of interesting the things that he said about it because he did say that, yes, and again, this is the thing where Maizaki is a really great interview subject because you can tell that he really doesn't like being interviewed. And it's like, so, you know, so Mr. Maizaki, you don't normally give interviews. What convinced you to come out and talk to us about Howl's Movie Castle? It's like, well, I was feeling sorry for my producer because he had to do it otherwise. Um, <laughs> But he was basically, um, when he was asked about the anti-war sentiment, um, and he was asked about why he didn't attend the Oscars, he didn't collect the Oscar for Spirited Away, he said, he said well, the reason I wasn't here for the Academy Award was because I didn't want to visit a country that was bombing Iraq. At the time, my producer shut me up and did not allow me to say that, but I don't see him around today. By the way, <laughs> my producer also shared that sentiment. Uh, which is kind of another kind of great interview subject as well. And he's talked about how when he was, and again, this is the thing where you can almost imagine the Disney PR executive in the corner of the room crying into their hands. Absolutely when horrified. He was talk- <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely horrified that he was doing this, like with the Los Angeles Times, with Time Magazine, and also with Newsweek as well. Um, and he kind of said that, you know, at one point he was interviewed by Newsweek and he said, actually, your country had just started a war against Iraq and I had a great deal of rage about that. So I felt some hesitation about coming to the award. In fact, I just started to make Howl's Moving Castle. So the, the, war is, the movie is profoundly affected by the war in mm. Iraq. But he's talking about how I was really quite excited. I didn't want to make a movie that Americans would like. I wanted to make a movie Americans would hate. I don't really care what Americans think about my movies at all. I just make them for the people who like them. Uh, which, again, you can kind of imagine the kind of Disney PR executive in the corner crying, yep. weeping I've, into their hands. I've read two versions of that interview. One is the yeah. full unedited and another is a more um, marketable one where they <laughs> edit very severely his comments. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's a funny kind of it's it. He's a very kind of a black and white sort of a view of what Americans are like. It's like Americans don't like anti-war movies. They like torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib <laughs> <laughs> and country music. Mm. Uh, Those two there's things. A, there's a, yeah, that's, and cowboy hats. Um, Oh, and bowler hats, possibly, and straw hats as well, maybe. I don't know. We'll just put that in the movie. But there's an interesting one, uh, and it just from the Newsweek uh, interview with him, again, which is one of the great ones. Uh, so the, the interviewer says, an interviewer, Ghost in the Shell director, at Mamura Ushi, claimed that deep down you dream of, quote, destroying Japan and making movies with lots of bloodshed. 
prompting this response from Maizaki. It's not that I want to destroy Japan. It's just that I predict it will be destroyed. Ashi and I are friends, so we always diss one another. Mm -hmm. Okay, but what makes him suspect that you have such feelings? And Maizaki responds, Maybe it's because I say things like, Oh, I wish a big earthquake would just hurry up and get here. My thoughts are very pessimistic, yes, but my general state of being is positive. I kind of love Maizaki as an interview subject. His, his general outlook seems to be uh, very negative of his own perspective, but he fully believes that children should be optimistic. Yes, he's, he's talked about this. because Children should be inspired to be optimistic and positive about the world and what they can do. But he himself has none of it. And they should watch less movies. <laughs> yes. He, he, like, Maizaki's actually gone on record and, you know, t- talked about how anime is destroying the world. No. Which is kind of, again, fascinating as well. It's like, go outside, read a book. Again, like, and again, The New Yorker got access to Studio Ghibli um, during the production of this and during the release of this, which, again, incredibly rare, incredibly difficult, never happens. It will include the link in the show note. It's called The Auteur of Anime. And again, you read the interviews and sort of the observation of kind of sitting in the pitch meetings with him. Um, and you have, like, the young animators, and he's like, oh, I dream one day of retiring, and I'll be replaced by the next generation. I think back to when I was so determined and so excited. I guess we'll find out if the kids are that determined, uh, which is kind of really vaguely depressing anonymous. But he's like, when he's talking about, like, some of the creatures and the way in which creatures should be animated, and he's like, um, you know, it's like when a snake drops from a tree. I want that kind of movement from the worm. And then somebody goes they've never actually seen a snake drop from a tree and it's like oh i despair of this generation it's like you know how many of you own dogs it's like when a dog rolls his head over and they're like no none of us and one guy puts up his hands like i have a cat and apparently Maizaki just shakes his head yep disappointed apparently he sent them all to a dog pound that evening um that's amazing and how how long were they kept in the dog pound (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, and again, so yeah, you do have that Until kind of they were adopted, for... I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, adopted by the other studios, basically taken out and animated for somebody else. But no, again, you have that sense of Maizaki. And again, this is kind of what Breed says, where there is this kind of cynicism about the world as it is, and particularly about his generation and kind of the way in which his generation have left the world. And then a kind of a, an optimism about like trying to instill something better <laughs> in children. And the idea, and again, he's talked about how, despite his own pessimism, he won't end any of his films on a truly downbeat and pessimistic note because he believes that kids should believe the world is better. And I'm not sure, like, in terms of cynicism, whether that's more or less cynical, where it's like, I have a happy ending, but not because I believe that people are better or the world is a good place, but because, eh, kids are going to learn it anyway and they shouldn't learn it this early. Don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing uh, from Maizaki. I just wonder how he but feels kind of... about Graveyard of the Fireflies. Well, it's funny because it's the, he's he's the maker of my neighbor Totoro, and we yeah, uh, exactly. uh, we 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 remarked, I think, watching it about um, how um, it kind of maybe flirts with stakes, and yeah. and but but doesn't really kind of threaten um, in in any uh, major way. Everything is fine. <laughs> you know, because this is the spoiler zone for for all movies. Yeah. yeah, there are points at which it looks like maybe something won't be fine, but that's okay because you're assured everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like the, giant it's cat the, bus. 
Well, what's Andrew described as the prospect of stakes. The stakes are that there might be stakes. That's yeah. like that's the level at which Totoro operates. Sorry, Breed. I think yeah. To be that. fair, um, once your neighbor is Totoro, I mean, what in life is really going to go wrong? You know, giant capos. That just enhances your life, yeah. Graham. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just saying, just giant capos. <laughs> um, but in terms of because in terms of talking about like Maizaki's themes, and I think that this is very much you can recognize it as a Maizaki film. And again, that emphasis on war that we mentioned, the emphasis of life out of balance. Again, it has that very recognizable kind of Maizaki protagonist. Oh, the the sorry, that's the other familiar Maizaki kind of I guess you could say trope or, or or feature that you have in this movie is a um lovable character that's also like terrifying. So I find the, uh, <laughs> we, all, we all immediately know who you mean. Yeah, because the the, 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 the the cat bus is kind of like that in, in My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> there is something a little bit frightening about that cat bus. It's um, the eyes. Yeah. It's like, and it's upsetting as well. Yeah. It's a cat that you climb inside. Of course, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway. But yeah, no, and... In terms of Maizaki themes as well, like you can recognize Sophie, Sophie Hatter, the central character of the film. And again, it's been noted by A.O. Scoff that actually you could argue that the character of Sophie combines two of Maizaki's favorite tropes. One of which is the kind of like plucky young heroine who kind of goes off and kind of finds her way in the world and manages to sort all this stuff out. And it also combines the kind of comic relief, like middle-aged woman as well, who takes no crap from absolutely anybody and sort of warps them together into one central character. And almost, again, you could argue that feels like a synthesis or a culmination of Maizaki's kind of themes um, he loves as a writer. A, he loves yeah, a hag. 90 is middle-aged. <laughs> Sorry? She's 90. Well, her age fluctuates a lot. Yeah, but she's yeah. 90. Which is kind of one of the main points of the... Yes, well, yes. But, you know. Yeah. The way Darren uh, lives, he'll he'll ninety will be his middle age. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, again, like I think that you can kind of you're gonna live forever, Darren. <laughs> but you can see again, you can see um, the character of Sophie as a character who is like a quintessential kind of protagonist in terms of Maizaki's films. And again, it's notable that what Maizaki has said in terms of why he thought that this was his favorite film, why this is the favorite film that he's made. Wasn't just because he got to stick it to those Americans. Um, It was also because he kind of saw the movie as a story about growing old and about how growing old isn't the end of the world. And sometimes it means that you have your whole life ahead of you as well. And like, I wanted to convey the message that life is worth living. And I don't think that's changed. Um, which is kind of very sweet and very sincere as well. I think that like the character of Sophie in this is interesting. And again, I think it's Susan Napier, who we talked about in the podcast before, who's written kind of one of the great treatments of Maizaki's work and one of the great treatments of kind of anime in general, has argued that like one of the interesting things about the film is it takes the character of that kind of like, you know, that kind of... uh, infantilized plucky young woman that's kind of a stereotype of anime is it shinju is that that the name would that be the term graham and breed shinjo uh shoujo i think shoujo shoujo yes shoujo and kind of like allows her to grow up it allows that kind of like stereotypical like adventurous young woman that's kind of a staple of of kind of japanese animation japanese manga japanese culture and allows her to kind of become an older person and to grow old gracefully as well because it is notable that japan has the oldest population in the world 
Um, its median population age is 46 years old, which is the oldest in the world. It also uh, doesn't... It, the Japanese population is shrinking in terms of its younger demographics. People aren't having kids in Japan. They're not having kids anywhere, but they're having fewer kids in Japan than anywhere else as well, which means that the age is getting older and older and the country is getting older and older as well. And so it, Howl's Moving Castle has been read in some cases as Maizaki kind of like trying to deal with that and trying to offer a maturing of kind of Japanese culture to a certain extent or kind of a celebration of growing old within it as well. And again, it's arguably not even a Japanese kind of thing in general in terms of pop culture. There's kind of a trend towards, you know, women of a certain age tend to disappear or tend to be obscured or forgotten and we tend to dismiss their adventures as well. And so Howl's Moving Castle is kind of interesting because it is a an adventure movie where the woman having the adventure, you know, is biologically 90 years old but it's perhaps you know 18 in terms of spirit and in terms of kind of adventure and in terms of like lust for life um so it's kind of interesting in that respect it's the dame judy dench story i mean like we we should probably we should probably see that like we 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 ought to be seeing it already um like rather rather than um kind of older characters kind of having this sort of uh niche of of being the um you know the what do you call it, the exotic merry-gold hotel or the mm-hmm. or, oh or the some... silver dollar the silver yeah euro. yeah 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 um it, it should just kind of be, um we should be seeing it permeating just good uh culture more generally as kind of the um countries of europe become um japanified yeah. Um, well, I mean, you, you could argue that's happening with male characters. Like, you could argue that the male action hero has gotten much older in recent years. So think of, for example, Liam Neeson in Taken, for example. Or the yeah. fact that Bruce Willis is still in that demographic as well. Or even the fact that Jason Statham is in his 40s as opposed to his 20s or his 30s as well. Or the fact even that, like, you know, martial arts films are still dominated by people like Donnie Yen and, and Jackie Chan to a certain extent as well. Like, I think that you can say that the, the age of the action hero has gotten older in general. But Should I do think that women... bank on that. Well, yeah, but okay, The Expendables is an extreme case. The Expendables is very much an extreme case, but I mean, just even in general, in terms of like the action heroes that you see, Liam Neeson like became an action hero in his 50s and 60s, to pick an example. Um, And those aren't movies that are always about him, how old he is, although they they do tend to be about how he's a dad. I I suppose we have migration here, though. Which 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 yes. which is less of a factor in Japan. I mean, they're 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 trying to open up Japan a bit more, in order to kind of um, combat that uh, demographic kind of time bomb. But um, it's um, it's uh, it. I suppose it helps us that uh, that there's so many uh, things People happening in the in. world. That's yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah and kind of like a shift and a kind of change as well but yeah no it's, it's kind of been suggested that this might be an influence kind of on on Maizaki and particularly on Howl's Movie Castle as notable I know we're going to talk about the dub later on so we're not going to talk about it in too much depth right now but it's notable that the voice cast for the dub um, of this film um, includes actors like Lauren Bacall um, and Gene Simmons as well actors of a certain age women of a certain age who kind of like had watched their careers kind of dry up and hadn't got as many plum roles this i think was the last film gene simmons made that was released in a cinema uh, to pick an example which is kind of quite depressing of itself and it's kind of amazing in that respect um because it is very much 
and again, we'll talk maybe more about the dub later on, but Simmons is is tremendous uh, in the role. She's probably one of my favorite things about the film. This idea of, and again, I kind of love it. Just to clarify for it, anybody who's just seen the subs, this this isn't the Kiss uh, front man we're talking <laughs> no. about. Yeah, yeah, no, this is the actual actor whose name the Kiss front man sort of took or referenced. Again, and this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Howl's Moving Castle is the way in which, and it's it's more obvious in the dub, but it's also there in the sub, but the way in which Sophie acclimatizes so quickly <laughs> to what happens to her. She really so like, does. She's... She, uh, Yeah, it's really funny that you guys say that, right? Because I notice this. I notice this every time I've watched this film of Breed. We've watched this film a fair bit. I believe wholeheartedly in my heart of hearts that Breed would do the exact same thing. I think Breed would acclimatize and she agreed with me. All I said <laughs> was that Sophie was making some very logical statements uh-huh. and uh-huh. she was being very realistic about it. And yeah. I don't see what's wrong with that. No, I'm just, I'm just, it's very funny because like watching it pretty. I mean, what good would panicking do you really? I know, but it's just really funny just watching the film and just see it and like breathe. So I'm going, that's very true. That's, oh. that's, that's, a, that's a good point. You need a good stick. When we are discussing the dub, remind me. Just remind me about the Lauren Bacall thing because there's there's okay. something else. <laughs> oh, there is indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah if you know that, it's yeah. yeah, yeah. I yeah. Um, but in, in, actually, there just in terms of kind of, I, I'm I'm on team breed with this because it's like you're <laughs> <in the world laughs> where, you're, you want to be turned into a 90 year old lady. I didn't say I wanted, but I would no, no. cope with it. Yeah, like you're living in a world where magic is real. <laughs> People know that how it exists. Like, you're living like you're living in a world where there are wizards and you've just been walked through the air and you know that there are evil blobs with straw hats that hunt you through the street. You've suddenly been transformed into an old person. What are you going to do? Are you going to gripe about it? Are you going to like cry about it? Are you going to have a breakdown about it? Or are you going to do something about it, Graham? That's what I ask you. I mean, I'd so like a little bit up. of a freak out. Like she had, she had like a second apparently, of a freak out. Apparently there's a line in the book um, where she's staring, when she's staring in the mirror, where she just goes, well, now you just look on the outside how you are on the inside. Mm. Oh, well. Which, which Emily, Emily Mortimer actually, Emily Mortimer, who plays young yeah, Sophie, yeah. actually encapsulates that quite well when she's in the film. Mm. Yeah. Well, she she says that like when she, in, in the film, there's that sequence where she looks in the mirror. It's like, at least your clothes suit now. Yeah, yeah it's similar. <laughs> But again, and and it's done so well, and I kind of love that she just kind of gets on with what she's yeah. doing, Me as well. which I really admire. I'm just saying, Breed would do the exact same thing. I think it's her her sense of humor that yeah. that that um, that makes it uh, easy for her. Yeah, she was or easier, ready to or be easier for woman. her. Like she's a real wit, you know. Yeah, yeah. she's very she's very uh, she's she's very smart. She's very cunning. Uh, she's great fun. And again, I think I have a soft spot for protagonists who are like that, who just roll with what the universe throws them. <laughs> like there's a sequence. No, there's a sequence where she picks up a like a stare, a scarecrow from a bush, and the scarecrow starts following her. Yeah. And she's just like, "Oh yeah," it's just like, "Well, I guess you're a magic scarecrow." Well, that makes sense. How am I going to magic, deal with this problem? Magic terrifying <laughs> scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> A magical yeah. uh, stalking scarecrow. In fairness, you could do a yeah. podcast just on that scarecrow alone. <laughs> God bless him. There's a whole. Oh, yeah, there's... there's a whole film about turnip head that they never oh. went near. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. There actually is Graham. Is there? Yeah. yeah. Um, his his original plot line. Yeah. Far more prominent. Oh, cool. Because yeah. um, spoiler alert, they're meant to be looking for him. 
Well, they are. They say at the start. <laughs> they say at the start of the film. Turn the. They say oh, that I, the, but, the prince has gone missing. But when well, the that king, doesn't really count, Graham. When the like king, they, it's in the background. Sorry, go ahead. When, when, the king call, when the king calls in Howell, that's what he wants him to do. He doesn't want him to join the war. He wants him to find the king. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but I love how it was just a throwaway thing at the end. Then it's just kind of perfect. Yes. To, to be clear, right? So when Graham says it was foreshadowed, if Andrew watched the sub, it is not mentioned in the sub at all. Oh, isn't it? No. In, no, no, no. Well, you can't no. have... The it, thing is, in a film like that, you can't have two sets of conversations going on at the same time. Otherwise, the the dialogue box no. will get kind of confusing. Subtitles can do but that. But on a film, on in an anime show, yeah, that's no problem. But on a film, that's very difficult to do unless you're going for a stylized form of dialogue boxes. And I, I completely get why they but, would be able to do that. I, I would also say that Graham is significantly overstating the weight of the foreshadowing. No, I know, given. I know. There is a moment <laughs> in the film where Sophie walks out of the shop, um, <laughs> and in the background of the shop, there are three men with mustaches reading a newspaper, <laughs> and they say, "Why did you say huh. mustaches?" And because it's a very important detail, Graham, very it's what allows them to dub the dub the voiceover, even though their lips aren't moving. Um, so they say, "Oh, hey." The prince has gone missing. I really hope that they resolve this. And then she wanders off. And that's all you hear for the next 115 minutes. Yeah. It's like, oh, by the way, here's the prince. Yeah, it's nice. yeah. He's got a pogo it's stick. Nice it's, it's, it's really funny in the in the sub. It's like, it's kind of there for people who, um, it's like a token for people who've read the book. Yeah. It's um, just, yeah. Hey, so here's a bit of fan service for people's, people who've read the book. Remember the prince? Yeah, here he is. It was but like, it's, it's fan oh, service which resolves the plot. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, it, it's it's like no, you you. I mean, it's not really resolving the plot when all it is is him just going and I'm gone. Bye, bye, guys. Yeah, well, yeah, like, and, he, and ends the war. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, here's the really funny thing. I don't get how it. I, like, obviously, it's that they thought that he had been kidnapped by the uh, by the by their forces. Oh well. But what I don't get is Solomon. Solomon's looking like and here we are in the spoiler zone so thank god because this is at the very end of the film and um, Solomon is looking through her crystal ball and is seeing that this has all now been resolved with Howell and he's got you know his heart and everything and he just, and she just goes alright call in the prime ministers and that we're gonna we're gonna fix this war and she's like you could have done this at any point in the film also she's the one who cursed him I thought it I, she's the one that cursed the prince yeah. I thought it was I, but did they not say it was the witch of the waste that cursed him not him no I thought it was she can only put curses on people. She can't take them off. She had forgotten that she had put the curse on the on the prince because of uh, being depowered. So it was the it's the waste who had cursed him. I'm I'm not sure where that's coming. That's, that's from, in the film, is it? Yeah. So you're saying that Solomon? No, no, I'm I'm genuinely asking Darren and Andrew. So you're saying that Solomon set I... the whole thing up. I think the film implies it might have been the Witch of the Waves. Yeah. Again, it's oh, it's incredibly okay. vague, but I think in the novel yeah. it is. Yeah, it, it is yeah. her. And oh, in the yeah. novel it's Solomon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not in the in this. It's the uh, Witch of the Waves. Yeah, I didn't. No, I, yeah, I didn't get it either way. Kind of, I I knew that he had been kind of being cursed. It was it was a kind of like finally you've um, mm-hmm. you've um, you've released me from my spell, a kiss from my my true uh, love. from my <laughs> one true love, and it's like what movie are you in? Kind of, <laughs> um, just like just because she's your one true love does not mean you're her one true love it was like oh i quite like that actually. yeah i liked that as well i thought it was well, like that, that's, that's a real kick to the teeth of pretty much every disney fair. film it's just like no, no, following like, her like outside just, her house yes. in the rain the best friend not the boyfriend <laughs> yeah, if he had elbows he'd be lifting him. a boom box no, I was gonna say it did. <laughs> 
But by um, Disney logic, but no one... that would win him that. Yeah, no, which no, I despise. I... Yeah. That, that's it exactly. I think I think Breed's entirely right there. It is very much a deconstruction of that kind of trope. It's a deconstruction of the one true love trope. He is the nice guy. He's a stalker. He's the guy who <laughs> follows this girl that he's obsessed with. And he's or like, they follow oh, him because on. he's only in that one place. He's only in that field. Like technically Howell's castle doesn't move from that one place until the very end. So really... They're, they're, they're in his home. They're in his home Graham field. Graham is advantage. very much on the side. I just of like Graham. What he is, saves their what lives. What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Stuart we saves their lives. We... They're about to die at the very end of the film and he saves I... their lives by breaking his own I mean, spine. I will point so... out that several points throughout the film, Graham yes. straight up says he deserves better He than does them. deserve better. He saves her life see, multiple that... times and they and then saves their lives. It's right? not, not your fault. To date her. It's, yeah. it's I not your fault, Graham. Oh my god, Graham. I'm not saying this, that. This, I'm just this, saying there's like, bye. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying... Don't, this, don't stick those words in my mouth saying that he deserves is, a date. I'm just saying. Saying this what? Every, I'm saying that he deserves better than a bye and a pat on the back. But he every, had to go every, back immediately to end the war. <laughs> <laughs> Every movie that we've been raised with has taught us the same lesson. That, yeah. like, you're, you know, even uh, video games as well. Yes. Yeah. Is... Yeah, your princess is in another castle, another <laughs> yeah, movie yeah. castle. Um, exactly. Um, it's it's so a sobering it, it, feeling it's... when you're going through your old back catalogue of films that you used to really enjoy uh, when you knew no better, and your uh, fiance goes, Wow, Roxanne is a real piece of shit. Ah! Film. Yeah, sixteen candles. Yeah, never watched that, um, so I wouldn't know. Uh, sad part is beaches. It. I'm really sad about beaches. But he didn't like beaches. Oh. Well, that's not for the same reasons. No, 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 no. Completely separate matter. That just always just hurts me and stings me, and I need to. He just likes to bring that up. I I feel like yeah, it's not really relevant to the discussion that we had. No, 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 it's not. It's like we were talking. You know, you know what's awful. You know, Stalin and Hitler, and he's like, yeah, but I also don't like Justin Bieber's music. It's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, they've all done, they've all done terrible, terrible things. But no, and I think I'm, I think I might have an allergy to hickory smoked bacon. (laughs) (laughs) That's very unfortunate. Oh no. But well, we'll talk about that later as well because there's a lot of good. (laughs) Oh, Ghibli food. Will you stop? But now to, to bring it back to Turniphead and Sophie. Yes, yeah. Sophie definitely sends all of the signals. There's the moment when <laughs> she's like, go and get, you know, go and find me a cottage, which is just go off and busy yourself. Well, she and he just brings t- back busy. a castle. No, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. And he, wait, wait for this, Graham. And she brings, he brings back a castle and she hops <laughs> on the castle and she's like, oh, thank you. This is fantastic. Bye. It's so sad that we are never going to see one another <laughs> again. Like, that's a hint, Turniphead. And what does Turniphead do after he gets the, well, it's nice that we knew one another. I really appreciate this. Now go off and live your life message. He sticks his head inside the gears of the castle, waiting for her outside the door. So when she steps out onto the veranda, oh, look, coincidence. It's Turniphead again. Hey, hey, to be fair, we don't know the level of intellect he has. It might just be all the instinct. Like, we don't know. But he had what enough if, to if, fall if, in love with her? I don't know. Yes. He also if he, he had fall if, in love with her. Like, I mean, she gave a, a kiss. I would argue that maybe, maybe he great, has a magical kiss. This is a great look, Graham. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I like Tur- like I like Turniped, not because I think he deserved a date, but because he's treated like crap throughout the entire film. He's treated like an errand boy, and then at the end of the film, bye, and he doesn't like he gets two minutes of dialogue. He's never treated like an errand boy. He's helped out of a ditch. He's told. 
go off and enjoy your life. And then he's As like, As a no. scarecrow? As a scarecrow? Like, that's not a life. He very much inserts himself in. There's never a situation where they're like, turn up head, do this. Turn up head, do that. It's always like, hey, it's good to see you, turn up head. You go off and live your own life now. You have your own adventures. He's like, nope. Um, turn up head is very much like, I'm going to be in your story whether you want me to or not. But Graham, nearly every main character in this is cursed. So, I mean, yeah. he's not special. <laughs> they all have curses. Grant, but he doesn't know anyone else. Yeah, she, she's very clear kingdom. that, like... <laughs> yeah. So he knows Sophie. So there you go. No, he doesn't! Uh, of he of all the faces I know, <laughs> you turn up heads. <laughs> are the most charming. Yeah. yeah, and if I found you attractive, I'd totally be your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but I think of you more as a brother or a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> My least a favorite vegetable. That I do not like. <laughs> but yes, the friend zone is a literal field in this case. It turns yes. out. Yes, but no, and it is rarely actually... tilled. What? Ew! What? <laughs> okay. There was no I'm sexual going... connotations in that. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to get back to the point, which is what brought us on this conversation. Which is, yeah, what, what, what we were talking about there, which is it's actually, it's a very masterful subversion of the standard fantasy trope, mm. which yes, is, is the it's idea lovely. that your true love kiss. Again, it, Graham mentioned it, the kind of Disney movie template, which is the idea that you found this person and therefore you have earned them. Mm. And the idea is that, you know, she gives them a kiss. And for her, it's just an affectionate, friendly kiss. And for him, it's the kiss of his true love. And I love that, like, after that happens, the Witch of the Waste is just like, uh, looks like your true love is in love with someone else. And I love that Turnip Head is mature enough that he goes, mm. that's a good point. I'm mature about this. I'm going to hop on my giant pogo stick and go about my business. I love that the fact is the pogo stick was not, like, like the like that was magic by itself. So he had a magic pogo stick before he became a... Maybe he's, well, ha- maybe he's just how really think- good yeah. at yeah. how do you think how do you think he was able to do all that hopping as a scarecrow it's like it's just basic character logic there well, I think uh, it yeah. makes sense. it's funny just, it's just funny that you say you know that the, um, that uh, this did that with the subversion of that, uh, that that classic like we all think of it as a Disney trope uh, but it is like it's a rom-com trope all that kind of stuff but it is funny that like uh, is it is it, a, is it frozen that's celebrated for, for you know doing that that's subverting it when this has done it like a decade earlier than I don't think it's in a very similar way at all though frozen frozen's way is is showing that like it doesn't have to be romantic love but in this case it's 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 even the way that the scene was to her like freeing him of his curse oh that's great cool but then she's focused right back on howl and Mm. healing him it's not like, like the crux talked... of the film for her. I feel like we haven't talked Howl enough about is. Howl in this we podcast. We should probably we talk, should really about talk about Howl. We'll, we'll, we'll we'll get... <laughs> on, on Sophie for a sec, like in another story, yeah. it would have been a moment as well where yeah. uh, Pumpkinhead demonstrates that he's Turnip. he's he's seen he, he, he's Turniphead, uh, not Pumpkinhead. See sees true to sees her true beauty. And um, and and that she's not just um, an old crone, but Sophie isn't insecure. The yeah. the the most insecure character is um, 
Howell. Is Howell. Yeah. By far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just before we go, can I pause to remark that even though I think the turnip head is a parody of the nice guy, I do (laughs) hope that he he can't help but turn up. Ah. Honestly. Sorry. Uh, But yeah, before... um, before we move on, just on Sophie as well, because Maizaki's talked about the importance of Sophie being a middle-aged woman, and the idea is that Sophie the girl is given a spell and transformed into an old woman. It would be a lie to say that turning young again would mean living happily ever after. I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to make it seem like turning old was such a bad thing. The idea was that maybe she'll have learned something by being old for a while, and when she is actually old, make a better grandma. Hmm. Anyway, as Sophie gets older, she gets more pep. And she says what's on her mind. She's transformed from a shy, mousy little girl into a blunt, honest woman. It's not a motif you see often, and especially with an old woman taking up the old whole screen. It's a big theatrical risk. But it's a delusion to say that mean- that being young makes you happy. Makes you happy. Which I thought was quite nice. I yeah. thought that's a nice yeah. sentiment. Very much And so. it, it's, there, there are a lot of kind of advantages to, um, to being old as well. Like every uh, uh, so many so many things become a virtue when you're old. It's like oh, um, that old man is is still f- full of uh, full of vitality. Or do you see they had a had had a had a whole big glass of whiskey? Great woman altogether. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. When you when you get older, when you're older. Yeah. and she, yeah. you do and she points that out. Just, like stay, staying yeah. up late and drinking and kind of um, uh, you know. Um, yeah, be, uh, all all of all of these uh, things. Yeah, no, and again, like the film even points that out, where she says, like, one of the virtues of being old is that she can speak her mind, or she doesn't mm. have to worry about being, you know, about being seen as being pretty. You know, she doesn't menace by any of the soldiers again after that happens. She's allowed to speak her mind to express herself, and arguably, is much more comfortable in her skin as a ninety-year-old woman than she ever was as an eighteen-year-old. She takes a much clearer sort of run of the place. Like she's much more comfortable taking charge of the castle, cleaning it up, like bossing Howl around, even bossing <laughs> Merkel around, than I imagine she would have been as an eighteen-year-old mm. girl. That's kind of interesting to see that. It's a nice celebration of the idea of kind of a woman growing old. But yes, let's talk about Howl. Howl is a fascinating character. And I want to open the question up here by saying, you know, is Howl a soft boy or a fuck? Oh, God, no, Darren. I have no I have no clue what that means. And I'm really worried that you went down this avenue because I think I know what this means. I'm going to say both. Yeah, I was, I was I was watching this, and it's kind of amazing that like the voice actor Andrew's is green who the is voice really actor creepy. is. Yeah, the, it's amazing <laughs> that the voice actor is who the voice actor boinky is boinky because boinky I was watching. Boinky. I was watching. I was watching this, and I was thinking, if there ever is a live adaptation of Howl's Moving Castle, Howl is going to be played by Timothy Chalamet. Oh, he also no. does not have a boss. No, no, he absolutely like. Twig you know what you wing. need? You need height. You need height to yeah. play um, that. And Timothy Chalamet is a wee boy. T- twig with a wig. He also doesn't have a buttocks as well. Um, <laughs> but no, like, I mean, it's it's very you much like, that. and again, this is the thing where you, can, well, that's why you can't sit down in chairs, as Andrew pointed out when we discussed the little women. Um, but I think that one of the reasons that, like, again, one of the things that I find interesting about Howl's Moving Castle is that it's that thing that we discussed, the difference between it and other Maizaki movies. And it's kind of, we alluded to it last week when we talked about Laputa Castle in the Sky, is that Maizaki tends to have female protagonists. And typically, his stories don't involve romance. They don't involve love. 
the happy ending is the character coming into their own and kind of like accepting themselves as who they are and accepting their place in the world and emerging more confident. And Sophie definitely has that journey as well. But Sophie has that journey paired with a romantic subplot involving Howell. It's a story about in which she falls in love with Howell. And again, it's kind of interesting because, and again, this is kind of ties back to what Graham mentioned about the idea of war. Because like war is very much a big part of Howl's Moving Castle. I'd argue it's very much what Howl's Moving Castle is about. But it's a war movie in the same way that, say, Casablanca or Gone with the Wind are war stories. In that the war is constantly framed through this relationship between a man and a woman, between this love affair, between a man and a woman, between this thing that kind of separates the two of them to a certain extent, that kind of threatens to keep them apart, that kind of keeps pulling the man and the woman away from one another and kind of keeps them separated. And it's kind of interesting because it's been suggested that although Maizaki has written these kind of women characters who are fantastic and who are brilliant and well-loved, the thing about Howl's Moving Castle, and again, people suggest that this is maybe because it's drawn from a text by Diana Wynne-Jones, is that this actually feels like it's almost got a feminine gaze to it. It feels like it's almost written from a perspective of a woman. And again, that's probably the source as well. But this is largely down to how Howl is presented. Because Howl is presented throughout primarily as an object for women to kind of, that to be attracted to, basically. All the women in the story want Howl. And again, they don't necessarily want Howl in the way that a male fantasy presents, like, women wanting Howl to be, which is, Howl is great and awesome, and look at all these sexy women who want him. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle is more like... Well, to be fair, the first time we hear about him, that is exactly what they want. They're no, kind no, of frightened yeah, the, of him as the, well. Yeah, the three women, the three women who Sophie over here, in they the are shop. in the shop, are saying, "Oh my god, he's so attractive! Oh my god, I love him!" Like they basically, they might as well be Gaston's trio singing his praises. But like, he's not Gaston. Is, no, but like, I'm he's not, not a that, big chest. Okay. I'm just saying that yeah. these three women that are in Sophie's hat shop are talking about how much they adore him, uh, and and I don't even know if people see because it's not quite explained. Like, have people seen what he looks like? Like, do they know what he looks like? Or is it just, oh, the, the mystery and the legend of Howl is so fascinating. And we hear that, you know, just he steals women's hearts left, right and center. He gobbles them up. And, you know, obviously the sexual connotations there are endless. So it's it's just funny hearing these these first three women talking about Howl are talking about him in the most overtly obvious mm. way. Compared to, obviously, Solomon... Um, which the waste and Sophie, who each have their own reasons for wanting Howl comparatively well, to those first three, they're the most well, traditional. Graham, Graham, his name is Howl. He's twenty-seven years old. He believes in taking care of himself and a balanced diet and a rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if his face is a little puffy, he'll put on an ice pack while doing his stomach crunches. He can do a thousand now. After he removes the ice pack, he takes a deep pore cleanse lotion. In the shower, he uses an activated gel cleanse and then a honey almond bum and scrub. And on his face, an exfoliating gel scrub. He then applies a herb mint facial mask, which he leaves on for 10 minutes while he prepares the rest of his routine. He always uses an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer. Then an anti-aging eye balm, followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There's an idea of Howl, some kind of abstraction, but there's no real Howl, only an entity, something illusory. Though he can hide his cold gaze and you can shake his oh, hand God. and feel his flesh gripping yours, oh, my God. and maybe uh. you can even sense that his lifestyle is probably comparable, he simply is not there. 
Darren, we are done professionally. <laughs> do Sorry. Know, do you want to explain what? to Breed what that was? That is a monologue from American Psycho. Played by... Starring Christian yeah, Bale. Yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. Because Breed's but face, <laughs> I, knew, I knew the second you started that monologue, I was like, Breed's not going to get this at all. But no, and uh, weirdly like, it worked though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it's it's interesting what you said because, um, in terms of the concept of Howl being a mysterious character, and that's actually one of the reasons Diana Wynne Jones went back to explore more in that world. Um, so in the next two books, you follow other protagonists, but um, your main characters from this do show up. You just have to find them. Because Howl, being Howl, is not called Howl or doesn't look like Howl. The great wizard Jenkins and the sorcerer uh, Pendragon. Sophie and uh, little baby Morgan. Um, Yes, I know. Spoiler alert. That's nice. (laughs) Um, They they also learn the... you kind of trying to find... Wait, is that? No. No, it wouldn't be. Is it? And that's got a kind of running theme through the next two books. Yeah, because I mean, this is very much like a, a point of Howl's moving castle. And again, this is the thing where you talk about kind of the feminine uh, perspective on it. Because Howl is, again, this is 2004. It's no, but this was around the same time that you had Twilight coming out as well. <laughs> but there's this tradition. No, but th- there is this tradition. And again, it's something that's kind of denigrated and kind of looked down on. And, and 50 Shades of had- Grey. 50 Shades of Grey, I think, would be a couple uh, years later. Howl, a while Howl, later Howl, Howl Darker. Howl Freed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the sequels. Yes. Hell shades of gray. But no, okay. Joking aside though, like again, no, no. you you look like through this tradition of kind of prose written by women that's kind of romantic. This idea of characters like Heathcliff, uh characters like Edward Cullen. And they're all very similar to Hell, which is that they are flighty. They are young, they're kind of effeminate, they're gentle, they're not threatening or kind of hyper aggressive. In fact, Hell's introduced protecting Sophie from the kind of advances of two more stereotypical masculine guards. Mm. He's kind of effeminate. He's very obsessed with his looks. He takes care of himself. Uh, But he also kind of, you know, he's very gentle, but he's prone to mood swings as well. He's emotionally volatile. He's sensitive. Um, He's unreliable and he's flighty, but he's well-intentioned. He can take a good home. He's capable of cooking a nice breakfast and providing for the people around him. He genuinely loves and cares for people, even if he has difficulty showing it. And again, this is the kind of thing where that's what I was talking about when I talked about the difference between a male gaze and a female gaze, where Howell is very much a kind of a a male figure that you kind of see in stories that I traditionally consider to be more romantic or kind of women focused. And again, very much from Sophie's perspective. And if you look at the women in Howl's Moving Castle, because again, like a lot of Maizaki films, a lot of the key power players are women. There's the Witch of the West who wants to possess Howl's heart. And again, I absolutely love that line where she's like, young men, who'd want anything to do with them? Although their hearts are very delicious. Mm. But you even have kind of uh, Solomon, uh, who talks about like the idea that, you know, Howell was a student of such marvelous gifts and he just turned his magic to purely selfless, selfish uses. And the idea that Howell is a bit of a waste, he's a bit of a layabout. And again, in terms of Timothy Chalamet terms, like that's oh, every Tim. <laughs> no, no, but it, it is. It's every Timothy Chalamet character. It's like the character that he plays in Little Women, very much also the character you could argue that he plays in Lady Bird as well. You know, the idea that he's wasting himself away. All he needs is kind of something, someone to help whip him into shape. Somebody to come along and kind of fix him up. Would, and literally would, fix up his castle, which Sophie does. Would you say and he so, also includes the king as well? Sorry? For his film, The King. 
Oh, okay. Well, the King is King is kind of a different example. Yeah, it's yeah. a Netflix film. It's very much it's it's very much outside that sort of uh, kind of purview. Uh, but no, in terms in terms of say his collaborations, mm. we got a Gerwig, for example. Mm. Um, but even even in terms of um, that movie they made with uh, Mika, uh, I can't remember. Oh, calling by your name. Uh, yeah, calling by your name would be another example as well. Yeah. But again, you you have this idea that Howl is this kind of vulnerable. Like he literally turns to goo at one point. That is hilarious. Like, when he throws this little temper tantrum, and he's like, what's the point of living if you can't be beautiful? He literally throws a little temper tantrum. I think on the DVD, the chapter is actually titled Drama Queen. <laughs> um, and, like, in the sub and the dub, like, she refers to it as drama, or I've seen people throw tantrums before. He turns into this wet kind of mess. This it's kind of, gross. like, pile of... Yeah, but this pile of goo that doesn't even have a kind of a spine. It's not really a person. And it's up to Sophie to kind of pick him up and gather him up and help clean him up again. And you have that kind of fantasy of Howl as, again, and again, you, I want to be very careful about this because it's not quite the love of a good woman fixes Howl. Because that implies that it's Sophie's job or Sophie's responsibility to make him a proper person. It's more that Sophie's love allows Howl to become the best person that he could be. You can um, you can say that she does help complete him. Like, you can say that thematically because she does literally and figuratively help complete him. Well, she she restores his heart. Yeah, she restores his heart. And yeah. there's a theme that I I suppose it could be unique to me because I, I always glop onto these uh, silly little theories of that he's a child for the entire film because once he lost oh, yes. his heart he stayed that age he the only difference was he he grew he he you know he he aged but he himself is mentally still kind of like that's why he's so immature is because you know he never got to be older than acting than a teenager so all the flights of fancy are because you know he's never had to learn to deal with responsibilities well calcifer points out it's still the heart of a boy yes yeah that line in particular in some ways, though, that, that that's kind of a thing, I suppose, that bothered me a little bit about this movie and the kind of um, seeming message of it. Like we, 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 we. I think it was a real point of contention on um, "A Star Is Born." Yeah. About 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 the same sort of um, like like the very um, difficult. Um, trouble man who can be uh, saved by a woman mm. and wouldn't it be great to be that woman it's a, a, rather rather than kind of you know um, I don't know um, aim, aiming for um, you know a, a grown up man yeah um, it's or, it's, sorry like, like, like she says um, I don't care if you're a monster mm. That, yeah. Kind of, I, mean, I know there is a a a, a good person inside of you, yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I'm... and there is there is there is this kind of, um, I don't know. It kind of strikes me as a a a, a dangerous but very romantic notion. Yeah, because there's always the fact that there's the bad boy, which he is also a bad boy, because he right. does things by his own rules. Yeah. And there are moments in the film um, where he is literally a monster, and she pretty much says at one point i'm trying to i want to i want to help fix you like she's like right. i can save you well i i would, i'd like to see I what he thinks on this because oh, you know no let's yeah, yeah. this point first and absolutely then but we're like it's just it's oh. just coming from a male point of view that's like um honestly the way i viewed their relationship um from that aspect is she's the first person to give him the support in his life that he needs to try and figure it out himself because it isn't 
I don't think it, that Sophie figures it out for him. I mean, obviously yeah. the part with yeah. the heart, she does literally heal him. Fair enough. Yeah. But she's there. She's a support system that he's never had. She's someone who backs him and believes in him. And that gives him, like, he comes to the realization himself. It's like, no, actually, I'm I'm going to stop running away. I'm actually going to do something because it matters now. Yeah. You know, that's on his own terms, I think. Mm. I think I think that's kind of the big difference that I see between the examples Andrew cited. But even if you want to go back to things like, say, Heathcliff, for example, in Wuthering Heights, you could cite this example of the trope. Uh, but even, say, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast as well. Mm. It's yeah. like the big difference between Howl and those characters is that while Howl is irresponsible and while Howl maybe isn't ideal and isn't keeping his house in order... He's introduced as somebody who is trying to do the right thing, even mm. if he doesn't know exactly how to do it. He's still, and it's notable that when it comes to fighting in the war, he's disrupting both sides. He understands yeah. the war is pointless. And even before he's had that big epiphany with Sophie, he sat down with Calcifer and he said, this war is disastrous. This, these people won't even remember that they were people when this is done. He still believes in what he's doing. He just doesn't have the strength of character to actually do everything that needs doing. Mm. Like, so it's not like, say, to pick an example of, of, you know, Jackson Maine in A Star is Born, who is just a big ball of resentment and anger. Mm. There's never a moment where, you know, he turns to, you know, where Howell turns to uh, Sophie and says, what does it mean? Why you got to come around with an ass like that? That's not real music. Um, or there's never a moment where he kind of, like the beast, yells at her to get out of a certain uh, part of his there's castle. A, there's yeah. a dream scene where he is a monster. That's a, that's her dream sequence, yeah. Yeah. not his no, dream I know, sequence. I know. You he can't, also like, doesn't keep her prisoner. Yeah, that's yes, true. as well. She crucial. more lands yeah, in on him. Yeah, she loves that place. She loves yeah. Hell's Castle. She literally yeah. moved in. Yeah, she moved in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and again, like, and even even in that opening scene where she moves in and she's cooking for him, mm. he st he steps in and he uh, he finishes cooking mm. for her. Like again, there's very much a sense of you know if this relationship is going to make me better. And again, this is something where I am a romantic when it comes to romance. I do think that like the ideal relationship between two people is one where you both make each other better. Um, yeah. Is one where the presence of either of you enhances the other one, and that it's it's something that both of you do in tandem. It's not something where one of you fixes the other or one of you yeah. is a missing part, the other one's there. But the fact that both of you are there means that both of you are better than you would be separately. And I think that's very much the case here where you can mm. see that Howl is capable of great things. And it's notable that like during that confrontation with Suleiman, uh, which is the moment at which, you know, Suleiman's like, oh, he's irresponsible. He's going to turn into a monster. He can't be trusted with that power. It's not that Sophie stands up and says, I'll fix him. It's Sophie stands up and says he won't become a monster. He's not a monster. He's doing the best that he can. Um, and he's doing the best that he can because nobody else is there to support him. And while the film doesn't vindicate him, in fact, it's very clear that he is a child throwing a tantrum. Mm. That sequence that he has with his hair makes it very clear that he's not emotionally mature in any way, shape or form. Uh, or he doesn't like being a ginger. I mean, you know. Mm. Yeah, but again, the reaction's very... No, it's a yeah. tantrum. It's a drama queen. Oh, it's yeah. very much yeah. overblown. Like, you, you get that juxtaposed with scenes of what he's actually going out and doing, what he's actually going out and seeing, what he's taking part in, the sequence where he's trying to change back into a person after going out that first time that you see him go out. Mm. And there is a sense that he is doing something good. He is doing something meaningful, even if he doesn't have the energy. He hasn't found something that he's willing to die for yet. Mm. And I think that I think that it's a very thin line. I understand Andrew's concerns, so I definitely see it there. And I still think that A Star Is Born is 
doesn't work for me for those reasons Andrew outlined, but I think there's a difference with Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. I think Howl's Moving yeah. Castle's a bit more nuanced, a bit more kind of... it. The two characters meet each other halfway, as it were, yeah. rather than mm-hmm. one fixing the other, if that makes sense. Also, Howl doesn't... You know, when Howl's leaving and he has that big moment, he's like, you know, maybe I'm not going to come back. He makes sure that Sophie has everything that she needs and he doesn't write a song for her about how she will never love anybody but him. So that also <laughs> makes him a better for person. who hasn't seen that. That this also is the makes spoiler him, zone for all, all movies. For all movies. But yes, it makes Howl a much better person, I would argue, than Jackson yeah. Maine. Although I do think that they are <laughs> pretty much exactly uh, the same kind of template um, in terms of character. Mm. And again, I think it's kind of like when I talked about the movie feeling like a Maizaki film that isn't quite a Maizaki film. And again, one of the reasons why I love it as much as I do is because even though it has all those recognizable Maizaki themes and, and kind of beats them and kind of structures that you recognize, it's told through a different lens. So like the war happens primarily off screen, even though it's the biggest thing in the movie, even though it looms mm. over all of the characters, you don't really get that many big action scenes. No. You get like a brief sequence early on of Howl seeing the battleships flying and seeing the battleships that seem to like, fart out evil wizards in bowler hats i'd say poop. Um, yeah it does seem like it's pooping them out um and it doesn't help that they look like piles of goo um but that's that you can sequence say poop. is very of poop uh but it, it it that sequence is very short it's very abridged it doesn't even end with a big action sequence it ends with him going up above the cloud layer you don't see how that chase sequence ends the film kind of avoids these big action cues like you see the ships that are kind of set out all patriotic and all the flags mm. and the people cheering them on and waving them out and going out to sea and then you see one of them coming back and it's been destroyed and battered you know it's been and but you don't see the battle itself there's something kind of interesting in that because it feels like howl's moving castle is a story taking place on the edge of a Maizaki story, if that makes sense. It's a it's a it's a successful example, I think, as well, maybe, of making a war movie that does that manages not to to glorify war. I think we've spoken yeah. about this before that it's very difficult to make an anti-war movie, kind of set during during a movie during 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 a war, because any kind of depiction of it is 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 likely Inherently to, to glorify it's very, it's very tough uh, as you say that I, I i'm finding it very difficult to actually think of one that doesn't at least have those glory shots that go yeah here's something really spectacular in a war film um i can i i can i can't think of any at the moment yeah and i think that like the way in which this film is constructed does that very well because mm. it's very much like you're watching a romance and then the war intrudes into it like mm. even that sequence where he goes out into the you know the ghibli field as it were you know the wonderful <laughs> kind of idyllic environment the green grass the flowers the blue running water and he sees the ship running in the background that scene again ends early it ends with him kind of taunting the ships the ship launching kind of monsters to chase after him and uh, him uh, throwing uh, 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 what does the ship do it poops monsters thank you <laughs> Um, yep. but pooping monsters to chase after him and then he kind of throws her through the door and that's, that's the hilarious. end of that se- but that, that's the end of the sequence we don't see the rest of that sequence because it's not important it's not that kind All of the- film well the viewpoint yeah. of the war from the film is the viewpoint of someone who's at home during it you know I'm seeing the ships go out seeing the wounded soldiers return seeing the devastation but not being part of it seeing the responses and the reactions, like Howell trying to be uh, recruited. There's a lot of all those elements that affect the people around mm. a battle, but not the actual battle. Mm. It's, it's very much from the point of view of, of Sophie. 
because she's mm. learning all about this. Uh, like Hal already knows about this; is already going out there. She's seeing the she's seeing the results of everything that he's done, or seeing what's happening during the war. Like she's the one who sees the ships go out. She's the one who sees the ships come back. Um, it's not Hal we we follow that. I think Sophie is kind of like she's sort of thinking locally and and howl is acting globally you yes. know like, like like yeah and um i think she asks him is, is that ours or the enemies yeah he, he says doesn't it, know. It, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah, yeah. what he, difference yeah. does it make yeah yeah because he hates both uh, of them well it, it is exactly and that sequence like that moment where he's and again it's it's a it's all metaphor and allegory and stuff like that and again Howl's Moving Castle the world building is kind of elastic we don't find out anything about either of the two countries nope. at war because it doesn't matter it's just a war we don't find out any particulars of what they're fighting over what the cause is maybe it's the prince maybe it isn't uh, and even if it is the prince it's just a background detail that comes up at the end <laughs> but like it's it's more interesting kind of the consequences of war because you mm. have that sequence where he's talking with Calcifer and he's like after the war they won't even remember that they were humans. Yeah. You know? Or like, sorry, that's that's the dub. In the subtitle, Andrew um, Calcifer says they'll cry later and he responds, no, they'll just forget they ever knew how to cry. And oh, there's a sense of kind deeper. of like the kind of metaphor of kind of war and kind of the way in which it scars people. And the idea that like, it doesn't matter. The idea of sides don't matter and kind of how disrupting both sides and again that's that's what Howell seems to do he's he's not fighting for one side or the other he's just trying to end the war it's, and again it can yeah. go for oh, no. and just in terms of like we we're describing it earlier as an anti-war film it's the only anti-war film i've seen that doesn't tell you why the war is wrong because it doesn't give you sides it doesn't give you reasons it doesn't give you why they're mad at them who attacked first any of those details it's just a war. You don't need to know any more than that. And war is wrong. Like that that's yeah. exactly it. And again, it, it kind of gets this thing that that Maizaki does and again it's a recurring motif in all of his work we kind of talked about when we talked about some of his earlier films as well, where he kind of rejects this I, again, Andrew joked about Maizaki having a very black and white view of America, but one of the interesting things about Maizaki's films is that they tend to reject this easy binary between good and evil or us and them and that sort of stuff. And arguably like... the idea of I like I, I like the thought of him explaining in an interview that I made a movie that you wouldn't like, but you're too stupid to realize <laughs> yes. what it means. Kind of, uh, so you gave me an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I made yeah, it too which, pretty. Uh, you didn't even feel, get it. And that's not me speaking. That's uh, feel like something he might he might say or think. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, Andrew has a connection with Hayao Miyazaki that we all really want. Yeah, yeah. it's very special. <laughs> but, um, but no, but I mean, and again, it's kind of this rejection of kind of this idea. And again, we talked about it on Laputa Castle in the Sky, where the idea that, you know, good magic and bad magic don't, you know, aren't binaries. They aren't, you know, alternatives. They exist kind of on a spectrum and in conversation with another. And here you have that idea of the war, where it doesn't matter which airships they are. It just matters they're going to fight and drop bombs and cause destruction and devastation. Mm. And even here you have this idea of kind of magic, where, you know, the idea of magic, magic can't magically erase the war. You know, when Howl arrives impersonating the king, he explains that, like, the reason why magic is just, you know, ineffective in this situation is that while magic prevents the bombs from falling on the palaces, it just means that they fall on civilians instead. Because mm. there's a sense of this is just how things are. There's no easy fix. There's no yes, no switch. And again, it's kind of interesting in terms of Maizaki's, 
And again, this is why I think one of my issues with Laputa Cast in the Sky last week was the idea that like it tried to do this kind of ambiguity, but then kind of gave up halfway and was like, yeah, let's just make Mishu a bad guy. Yeah. Um, let's just make him like comically evil. Let's have him kill a bunch of evil bad guys and use like a. Yeah, but it's all right because it's Mark Hamill. So. Yeah, yeah but but and like it's... again, it's 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 very much it's a cookie cutter kind of. Well, yeah. here's a villain. You wanted a villain we can punch or drop out of the sky yeah, or burn like, alive film, or whatever. This film. Yeah. It has have no that. villain. There's no villain. Yeah, and even even the villains are really charming. Like Granny is a real dick. Uh, the way Wicked uh, Witch of the Waste. Yeah, um, she, she, she's like, just the like, witch of the waste. She's not wicked. I don't know where she this is, is coming wicked. From. This is I don't know why you news. don't think she's wicked. I mean, I um, guess she's wicked, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, like you to know, use the parlance of two thousand and four. I would say wicked. the parlance of the nineties, but all right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah she, she's yeah. she's so like even like she lives with them. She but she doesn't have. Um, she doesn't really. Uh, change. She doesn't have like this Damascene uh, <laughs> yeah, moments as such. Like she, she continues to be like the same. <laughs> self-centered, <laughs> self-centered. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, um, completely uninvolved, interested in nothing but her and... own pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Like she gave it. She gave it to a demon of greed, which I found really interesting. I liked in in the in the in the sub. I'm not sure what it was in the, in the dub. Um. Marco, um, he's talking about the food, and he's like, "I yeah. myself hate potatoes." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he, yeah, they're walking through the market. I hate, I hate, myself hate, I hate fish. fish too. I hate what fish the hell, too, yeah. Marco? <laughs> I prefer the way. I prefer the way it's it it it, it kind of in in the um, there the, mm. he had a kind of an it, um an idiosyncratic way of kind of saying it, um, which is fun. Yeah, but back on the on the witch of the waste, and actually kind of tying back into food, because again, another mm. key Markle moment is the moment where Markle says, "Don't feed her; she's the witch of the waste." And I kind of love that Sophie, her response to that is, "Oh, she's okay," <laughs> and just to keep feeding her anyway. And again, this is one of the things that's so good about Maizaki's kind of films and Maizaki's worldview is that he doesn't believe that you kind of change evil by beating it into submission or dropping a bomb on it or nuking it. You change you change it by engaging with it and mm. by treating it in a humane sort of way. And yes, while the Witch of the Waste is still an awful person by the end of the film, she does eventually give back Hal's heart. She eventually concedes and gives it away. So she does have some sort of small character growth. Although I do absolutely love that the climax of the film where she finds the listening bug throws it into the fire and then finds a cigar and just yeah. spends most of the climax smoking a cigar inside the house um as like the world burns around her i kind of adore that aspect of her character but it's it, like even the prince at the end when he's transformed you know from turnip head into the prince he says you know said one thing you can count on is that hearts change and that's a very humanist, very utopian, very romantic idea. The idea that you don't defeat your enemy by beating them in battle. You defeat your enemy by making them your friend. Um, and I kind of find something very heartwarming in that. Also, the Witch of the Waste is adorable. The Witch of the Waste, when she turns into that weird sort of like Gollum <laughs> slash Yoda creature. She's kind Yoda of adorable. Creature. No, she's short and she's kind of like got all she's these She's just bones. old. Is that what you're going to say to your, to your old relatives? Ah, look, you've become a Yoda. I mean, answer me this. Does Michael D. Higgins look a little bit like Yoda? That's because he's that height. That's not because he, old people look like Yoda. The Witch of the Waste also shrinks. Yeah, but she also has multiple flaps of fat on her. 
when she's young. Are you gonna say she's the job? She's, she's 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 part of Jabba the Hut species first, and then she transforms into Yoda's. Don't flap shame. Yeah, um, that, that's okay. Um, he ate this, shamed this, first. This may have escalated quickly. I was referring <laughs> to the fact that she was short, adorable, and sassy, which uh, are traits I that I associate the, she's with. She's the you. exact same height. She's just hunched over. She can't be the exact same height and hunched over. Yeah, I think she is. I think she's the exact okay. same height. It's just because they say they. You don't think so? Considering how massively tall she <laughs> is. You yes, realize that she was yes. massively tall because of magic, right? Because she scrunched herself <laughs> into a small little magical box at one point. Yes. She is magic she is magically tall. So she was brought back to her to her nat to it's like that's the reason why. But that's what he's saying. He sh- <laughs> she hey guys, what did you what what do you think of Hain? <laughs> oh, he oh I hate Hain. I hate Hain. What? Hain is the dog, that by the way. That moment when you realize it's not Howl is just perfect. and every time I watch that film, I'm just like that every goddamn time. dog. He, it's he actually reactions. better. It's better watching it knowing it's not Howl. Yeah, Heen gives the best reaction shots. There are like several sequences in the film where Heen is just wandering through the background of a shot. Like there's the moment where Sophie reunites with her mother in the courtyard, and like over Sophie's shoulder, you can see Heen just walk into shot and kind of stare out, looking at Sophie's mother. And what? it's like, yep, Heen sees you. <laughs> what um, I love is the one where she's falling through time and Heen is just like walking through time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she's like, okay, I'll walk. No, Heen is fantastic. He, and again, Heen has this kind of like deadpan. It's amazing being a comic relief character without yeah, the ability to speak. Yeah. Like it, And again, this is the animation. The, the animation in this is outstanding. And we'll probably mm. talk about that a bit more in a moment. But like his ability to react given that he's basically just a throw rug with eyes, is outstanding. <laughs> yeah. Like, Heen is able to communicate so much with just, and again, Maizaki's direction, but like the reaction shots, the little gestures, the way in which he wags his tail, <laughs> he's so amazingly expressive. I absolutely adore Heen. I like, I like, I like Calcifer. Uh, yeah, I feel like we should move on to Calcifer Calcifer's from great. that. It's a natural right. progression. Well, just before we go, Heen is another enemy who becomes a friend. Um, Very he's a spy. Yes. Yep. He, he's sent as a spy and he ends up um, basically at the end. And again, wonderful reaction shot where he kind of just shrugs and wanders off. Um, but anyway, sorry, Kelsifer. Yeah, great. Like, he's just... I, I love Billy Crystal. Calcifer is... Is he Billy Crystal, really? Yeah, he's yeah. Billy Crystal in the uh, dub. Calcifer wow. is... He's that character who was enslaved and is very bitter and resentful about it. And then once he's set free, he comes back because he missed them. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is, Reed also has another character from fantasy that she really loves who has also been enslaved. And that's, is it from the Sabriel? Does he remind I you? Wa- of... d- yeah. yeah, you're spot. Oh, well, well done for remembering it. There is a, it, it just does remind me of a similar character who, um, yeah, it's it's quite similar. He's What's it, used, Muggle? U- Muggle, used Muggle. for their power. And, um, but then when they're eventually set free, it's like, yeah, I've kind of been enslaved for thousands of years. They're not that bad. You so, know. Kelsifer's yeah. relationship with Hell is kind of interesting in that sense, yeah. given what we eventually find out about the nature of it. Because yeah. it initially does seem like slavery. And in fact, he actually makes it seem like slavery, to be fair. Kelsifer is a bit of a bit of an issue there. And again, I kind of lo- this is one of those great, like, the balance of good yeah. and evil, where no character is completely evil. How Kelsifer is a demon. Yeah. Um, and yet, in spite of being a demon, he's intensely lovable. Uh, but also, you have that sequence where um, 
where after they land the castle for the first time, where Markle and where Sophie are sitting outside and where Turnip Head is being useful and kind of running the washing line for them. And kind of Markle's like, maybe he's a demon. And Sophie's like, he probably is some kind of demon, but he led me here. So he's probably the good kind. I kind of love that even in Maizaki films, demons can actually be pretty good when you get to know them. But again, you have this idea that like Calcifer, even though his relationship to uh, Howl is equivalent to kind of slavery or is it suggested to be slavery over the course of the film, you realize that that's not exactly yeah. what no, it's it a symbiosis. is. It's a it's very a sim- complex a, yeah. relationship because while he does seem to have some sort of resentment about the situation that he's in, he does also seem to have a genuine bond with Howell. Yeah. The two of but, them do seem to genuinely yeah, care about it's each weird. other. The thing is, I, the thing is when you see young Howell, and you see him with Calcifer, it does not look like he's like, I'm going to trick you now and eat you, blah. It just no. looks like they had a conversation. Like, you see you see it from Sophie's point of view. They were clearly having some form of conversation. And I guarantee you what the real thing was here, Calcifer was like, oh, I'm going to make a deal with this kid. I'm going to gain something from him for power. And it backfired on him. No, because I, because I, you I... find out in the course of the film that Calcifer needs tokens of people to gain power. Like when yeah. he asks for Sophie's eyes... And she instead gives him her braid. And he goes, imagine if I had your heart. And that's, that clicks for the Witch of the Waste. She's like, oh my god, you're his heart. And that's I, what clicks for her. I don't think that that's what happened at all, Graham. And again, this is the thing where it's intentionally ambiguous. And I suspect yeah. it's open to interpretation. Mm. But the way in which that scene is shot. And again, it's one of those things that is a stereotypical Maizaki image. We kind of mentioned it last week with Laputa Cast in the Sky. It's that almost kind of Miltonian image of like a demon or a, a god being cast out of heaven and falling to earth. You have it in the opening sequences of Laputa where you have uh, the girl falling through the sky, basically, and kind of drifting down and falling to earth. That sequence at the end is the demons um, and they seem to be falling to earth. But as soon as they co- come in contact with earth, when they hit the ground, when they hit the water, they die. Die yeah. horribly. Yeah. yeah. So you you have would you say horribly? The, oh, they do. Did, like the the shot of they bounce and they they don't scream, but like the shot of the sinking in the water is a like basically like a body being found upside down in a pool. It's mm. not a nice mm. way to go by the looks of things, or at least that's how it appeared to me anyway. But again, the idea that you have Howl catching that calcifer mm. in his hand, and the understanding that if he lets him go, if he lets him touch the earth, calcifer will die. That, to me, is what seemed to underscore the conversation between the two. And again, you have that thing with Howl where, you know, yes, he is feckless. Yes, he is irresponsible. Yes, he is vain and self-obsessed. But he's also like a decent soul. Mm. Jackson Maine would let the creature die and write a song about it and get to (laughs) Billboard number one. So, Um, guys, if you want to hear the second part of this this podcast where we talk about Jackson Maine and his (laughs) abhorrent attitudes in uh, Star is Born, stay tuned. But okay, leaving aside uh, Star is Born, but, but again, this is one of the things that this is one of the things that differentiates, I think, Howl from those kinds mm. of characters mm. is that Howl seems to act with mercy and compassion. Like there's a sense in that deal that Howl is he also wets Calcifer himself. Alive. Did you say he wets himself? <laughs> like like Jackson Maine, except he, oh, he becomes, he becomes a, he becomes yes, a you know, yeah, sure, sure, yes, sure. Does. That's it. But yeah. yeah, it did very much seem Jackson like... Maine just turns into a metaphorical <laughs> monster. Yeah. Sorry. Also, no, no, he also, no, because he also becomes Batman. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're just going to keep going in this rabbit hole. No, but in terms of... It does feel like Howell took him in and then learned that like 
if he drops, he dies. So I kind of, I have to take him in. Yeah. And neither of them, I think, had a choice. Howell didn't have a choice because morally he couldn't just drop him and kill him. And yeah. Calciver didn't have a choice because he would die mm. otherwise. And yeah. once they formed that pact, that's why Howell had to leave. Because if he had stayed, Solomon would have found out that he has a demon and would have taken away his powers. Also, can can we ask about the um, d- demons raining from the sky? Yeah, that's a yes. really interesting thing. I want to know more about that, yeah. I'm just saying. No, what I want to know is, and, and, <laughs> and I said this to Breed when we were watching it, you know how she has like a ton of children around her? They all look like blonde Howells. Solomon. Yeah, yes. Solomon. She has children all keep around mind her. That Howell, all like Howell. Keep, yeah, but say, keep in mind, there is no blonde Howell. At the start of the movie, Howell is blonde. Yeah, but that's not his Sol- actual hair color. His natural hair Sol- color is when he was a child, yes. which is black, which is what he yeah. goes back to after his hair is dyed to orange. Yeah, yes. So what you would take from that is that maybe Solomon has a particular type. Again, this idea of kind of women wanting to possess men. And again, this idea of kind of like women fighting over men and the idea that Howell is kind of largely, you know, agency less in this. And again, Howell... And again, this is one of the big differences that was actually changed between the book and the film. Uh, in the film, whenever Howell leaves, he's going off to fight the war. That's that's what's determined. That's what's through the black door. It turns out to be eventually. And oh, Bree, do you know what this yeah, is? Yeah, Why, what yeah. What is it? Um. Yeah. In in the book, every time he leaves, it's more to do with women. Brothel. Uh, what? Brothel. Not necessarily. No, no, just seduction. Again, the, the eating of the heart metaphor. Oh. Yeah. It's very much, uh, he, he's not as involved in the war. He's more, he's going out to meet a different girl every time. Oh, cool. And that does obviously have effect on Sophie's opinion of him. But uh, it's a different matter. Yeah. <laughs> but but again, and again, I kind of think that there's something very kind of cool and very clever in that, in the way that like, you again, you have this idea of Howl as something kind of, again, very gentle, a very gentle figure, a very kind of a figure who just needs to be loved. And you have this idea of Sophie kind of protecting him from these women who literally want to eat his heart. Um, But uh, even even Solomon wants to break him and control him and has like a little weird kind of fetish for little boys that she's made up to look like him. Yeah. Uh, and again, you and again, this is that weird thing that we mentioned again, another shout back to, uh, sorry, call back to Laputa Castle in the Sky, that weird barrier boundary thing with mothers and lovers where it's like Solomon is apparent like both a maternal figure to Howl yeah and also possibly when you look at what's happening with the boys in the castle is there maybe a suggestion of something else at play there like there was with Dola last week and her sons Graham you suggested this so you don't get to no (laughs) no don't don't ruin this one okay sorry no it's too it's too it's too it's too creepy now Okay, it's it's it wasn't was creepy when she was. She... All I meant was she was cloning Howl. That's all I meant. No. Okay, sorry. Maybe Andrew, will you back me up here? Am I? Am oh, of I course, he'll back you up. This? Yeah, they. I think they definitely all have AIDS. <laughs> was was that what you were suggesting? Oh my god! <laughs> it's a different the, podcast. The different subtext? Timothy Chalamet. Different Timothy Chalamet subtext. I'm afraid. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, by the way, do we know, um, do you want to know, I th- I feel like we're maybe reaching the end, so we'll talk about the dub in a moment, but do we know what talked about, what, sorry, what drew Maizaki to the project in the first place? Like, when he read the book, what was the moment at which he twigged, I have to make a movie about this? Was it the castle itself? Yes, Graham? Was I right? Oh, was I right? Like, it's a movie. You were. 
It's moving. Oh, it's, okay. It's, cool. it's moving, and the book never tells you how it's moving. Oh, so that's so cool. So apparently the moment that Maizaki realized he had to make a movie of Howl's Moving Castle was when he doodled a picture of the castle and drew chicken legs on it. I knew you were going to say chicken legs because yeah. that's what I think every time I see that house. Well, it is the Baba Yaga thing. I, I, you kind of do get that yeah. vibe uh, from yes. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's it's been noted that, you know, again, some of his biographers, some of his experts have noted that, like, this is how Maizaki works. He works at the small level and then kind of builds outwards. Mm. Um, and again, this is something apparently, again, not to get too stereotypical to Japanese cultures. The difference between how you decorate a house in Japan traditionally versus how you decorate in the West is in the West, you decide what you want the house to look like and then you tailor the details from that. In Japan, apparently you start with a space within the house and then build out from that into the house. Um, and so it's been, it's been described that Maizaki's way of working is very similar to that Japanese style where he'll focus on a small detail of the story and then kind of extrapolate kind of outwards from that. But do we want to talk about the dub? Because the dub is actually kind of interesting in this yeah, regard. Yeah, it really is. Because <laughs> he's Batman. What? Uh, more than that. There's a lot more than yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, just to, just to get this one out of the way, because mm. um, uh, this is a very rare case. Um, you, you see a lot of things with subtitles and dubbed. And um, Miyazaki prefers Lauren Bacall's version. Yeah. Oh, does he? And yeah. and Gene Simmons. He prefers the female actresses in the English dub for a oh. very specific reason. The yes. hot to him? What, I don't what know. possible what? difference would that... I don't know. What? We're talking about no. a guy who's had a conversation about breasts. Even ignoring he admires the them the way he would an oak tree. Okay, <laughs> I'm just going to ignore all of that. Yeah, um, but no. also the fact it's a voiceover. I don't um, know. But what he was looking for is these actresses. It, he found that the Japanese actresses gave off a certain vibe in their voice acting in terms of we want men to like us, a kind of a coquette kind of. You know, they're kind of like, oh, and oh, but no. he f- and he found that the um the like English the English dub actresses that they had more confidence and mm, power sort of. and self assertion in in their voices, and he felt that represented the characters much better. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they they do. Those two characters are very much strong st- strong feminine uh, voices. When you watch it, it's a, it's um that's very sad to hear about the original. What? Yeah, it's it's one of the few times where I think someone prefers uh, one of their own creations in a another language. language. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to be fair, Maizaki said that like he's not conceptually opposed to dubs. In fact, he actually thinks that like, and again, this is one of the things where I want to be very careful about how I frame him. I don't want to, to misrepresent what he's saying. It's only a partial quote in the article that I read. Uh, but his argument was that, like, if you are watching a sub and you don't speak Japanese, you are missing a lot of the subtext and the content and the tone and a lot of the emphasis on, say, particular words in there. So from his point of view, in some cases, he would much prefer that you watch the dub because hearing the words spoken and the emphasis put on them in the performances is a large part of the film, even if that's not the one that he directed or the kind of performance that he wanted. And he has talked about how he ha- there are versions of his film that he hasn't watched dubbed in English. Um, but this is the rare case where yes he actually uh, he actually prefers the english language dub of Hmm. of this one as well and this is notable for a couple of reasons um after spirited away disney threw a lot of money at this um it was notably voice directed by pete doctor um, oh i've met him yeah 
who you may know from Pixar. He directed Inside Out. Um, yeah. He also, yeah, he also directed, he directed Soul, which is coming up soon as well. Um, he's generally one of the most promising directors at Pixar. And he drew together a cast. He reworked the script basically, um, you know, in a more profound way than other dubs kind of reworked their script. Um, he started from scratch on there. He brought in the cast that includes a variety of actors. Um, incredible talent. I would yeah. argue, like, again... And again, it's worth noting, I don't want to be disparaging of the sub or the original uh, Japanese track. It's worth noting that it does have its own pleasures. Notably, The Witch of the Waste, and I don't know if Andrew picked up on this, but The Witch of the Waste in the Japanese dub is played by Akiro Miwa, who is basically known as Japan's preeminent drag queen. Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, and it's it's a tremendous vocal performance if you get a chance to listen to it. It's worth switching over if you're watching on Netflix just to get a sample of that performance. Um, it's kind of amazing. But the English dub is is outstanding. Um, and yeah. again, you kind of mentioned the, the Lauren Bacall and Gene Simmons are, yeah. are phenomenal. A large part of why I was so moved by Hal's Castle is Gene Simmons' performance. Because you don't normally get to see an actor of that age getting to do a performance like that i mean even if you look at say up for example a pete doctor film with perhaps similar themes with ed asner that the old character in that is very different from sophie here there's a real joy de vivre and i kind of mentioned mm. that aspect of like the great thing about the film being how quickly sophie just kind of gets on with it <laughs> where it's like it's like yeah it's like i'm old now might as well get used to it um but again <laughs> We mentioned the casting of kind of uh, Billy Crystal, who voices Calcifer, but the big one is Christian Bale. um, I was wondering why you took so long. (laughs) Also, also, we also have like as as a smaller note, Josh Josh Hutcherson is Josh Hutchinson from Hunger Games. Is you know he's Markle. Like let's not forget that first that kid. His first his first voiceover performance. Yeah, and Um, Turnip Head is voiced by Crispin Freeman, who has the most voiceover credits of all of them. Uh, and he gets like five minutes of, like, not even, he gets two minutes of uh, voice before he has yes. to leave. Crispin Freeman, great actor. You, if anime fans will know Crispin Freeman from a ton of anime, his, one of his biggest roles is out of Naruto. He was Itachi Uchiha, one of the like scariest villains in the whole series. Um, also worth noting that Madame Suleiman is played by Blythe Daner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he's played by Jenna Malone as well. But yeah, no, the Christian Bale thing is kind of interesting as well because, again, Bale had seen Spirited Away and had literally told his agent, if you can get me in the next Maizaki movie voicing anything. Um, wow. And it was like, yep, yeah, I think we have just the role for you as well. And again, you mentioned he does the Batman voice. He does the Batman voice during the dream sequence. You can recognize the Batman growl. You can hear he it. Act- yeah, you can hear it. Yeah. He actually, he did that quite intentionally. While he was working on Howl's Moving Castle, he was preparing for Batman Begins because it was around the same time. And in fact, if you watch the behind the scenes documentaries about the film as well, you'll see that he's wearing the t-shirt from the martial arts training that he was doing in order to get in shape to play Batman as well. So it's kind of like a nice little symmetry between the two as well. Um, And again, I think Bale is very, very good in this. Again, this feels Mm. like it's kind of a nice... It feels like it fits in a certain extent in that wheelhouse of Bale characters with Patrick Bateman on one extreme and with sort of... uh, (laughs) No, but with Bruce Wayne on the other. This idea of men who are driven, who are isolated, who kind of isolate themselves from other people, who stand apart, um, who kind of struggle to connect with other human beings um, in a very meaningful way and who maybe aren't emotionally intelligent. Um... Like, it's very much, it is a perfect Christian Bale character, to an extent. I think his voice work is phenomenal here as well. He's a renegade. 
believes in driving cars and um, <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I, I um um and i found i found watching it he did the same thing he did in empire of the sun where i watched the entire movie um the first time i saw uh, um how's moving castle and didn't realize until the end that christian bale was in it same, I love the idea same. that he's just as good a vocal transformation as a physical transformation. His voice yeah. lost 180 pounds for this. It's like, um, uh, yeah, because like the he'll he'll do a movie where he where he's a child, and then, <laughs> and then the next movie, yeah, <laughs> he'll um, have a complete physical transformation. Yeah. Anyway, um, we. Um, I do love, by the way, again, this is the thing with Timothy Chalamet is that, yes, I feel like it would be the perfect little women thing because Christian Bale played the, the Timothy Chalamet character. Darren, what, Darren, what is going on with the Chalamet love right now? What's I, going on? We're yeah, just reacting to market forces, okay? <laughs> like, are you just like, coming Don't off question. of a, of a Dene Villeneuve uh, deluge of imagery about Dune? Hey, I can't help it. He's broken up. It's It's just on my mind. I'm in quarantine. It just keeps, you know... That or at the end of this, it's going to be sponsored by Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, it's going to be sponsored Chalamet, by Timothy yeah. Chalamet. Uh, but uh, anyway, I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Have no. we... Yeah. Anything else you want to discuss about the um, movie? Anything we haven't discussed already? Just to mention the music. I've, yeah. I've always loved the score for this. It's very it's soothing. Just, it's, just, it's just pleasant to listen to. Yeah. The Joe Asachi, again, wonderful score. And again, this is one of the things where the dub, because the dub was developed in parallel with the film in 2004... The music is quite similar across the two, so you don't lose anything by shifting between it. You don't get that extreme that you got when you got with, say, Castle in the Sky, where he literally re-recorded the score entirely from scratch. And again, it's a Ghibli film. It almost goes without saying that the animation yeah. is outstanding. I would Absolutely. say the reason why I love it more than the other films that we've discussed in this podcast is because this is peak Ghibli, in my opinion. The animation is crisp. Um, the colouring, backgrounds, everything look gorgeous. Uh, that's some of the reasons why I put it above some of the other films on this list. Um, even even Spirited Away, uh, it's some Spirited of, Away. It's like some of Ghibli's best. Yeah, like animation. When you look, when you when you go into a room, when they go into rooms, when they go into, and it's not just the house, it's not just Hell's Moving Castle. It's any room in this in this film. There's a lot to take in. You could pause there, and it's a, it's a, it's just a masterclass of uh, of art. Like in yeah, and, and imagination and yeah. kind of character creation, like kind of building these sorts of creatures and building these spaces. Um, yeah, and having all of the stuff like um, like Port Haven and Kingsbury as well, but also have having having these kind of um, freaky kind of uh, demons also. And it's yeah. a testament to the storytelling in that 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 Andrew remembers these names, it sticks in your mind and not because they're trying to force them on you, but you remember these places, even if you didn't really get a full visit to them. Like, you know, as Halsman Castle is going through the various kingdoms, you remember them because they even have their own little personalities when you get to see them. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And again, even small little shots. Like I absolutely love that sequence where Sophie is transformed for the first time. And she kind of looks at her hands, mm. the animation, that sequence. And then she does that thing with her with her face where she sort of stretches it and it bounces. And again, it's just so vivid and so fantastically animated and so beautiful to look at. It's absolutely stunning. And yes, very quickly, 250 tropes, food waste. 
uh, because yeah. we do get lots of that. I don't know though if Kelsifer is a person and he's actually technically he was eating. eating. Stuff. Yeah, because I was saying this to Breed. And he did say he wanted some. Yeah, he wanted some. Yeah, and so... me and Breed were thinking about it. Like, will Andrew bring this? Will Andrew be yeah. annoyed about this? But no, all that food was eaten. All that food was. Loved, I think so. I think food. so. And uh, uh, Grandma smoking feels very appropriate yes. too. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's, I do love that she's like, don't open the window. Um, it's like, you know, you're going to have to endure my cigar smoke. <laughs> um, that's the kind of house this is. I think no. the last thing I'd like to note on this, just because we haven't really mentioned it, no. only in passing, is the moving castle itself. Yes. Yeah. Which very much is the center stage. And it's just so, like that, the the, the door with the, the panel. And the, yeah. it's just, there's Stand so by. many wonderful details in it. Like it's it's a moving set. It's yeah. fantastic. It looks like a uh, Terry Gilliam drawing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Love about it. it well feels put. very much like something from a Monty Python thing. Mm. And again, it's worth noting one of the small details, which is I hadn't picked up on until I read it, is that my Zaki kind of figured the internal geography of the the house is quite small. The castle's quite small. It's the you know the kitchen area is shared downstairs with the basement area, and it's also you know where she sleeps for most of the movie as well. Mm-hmm. So there's only really that an upstairs landing, the bathroom, Hal's room, and Markle's room. Um, so inside that giant castle is mostly empty. So it's literally a castle made of paper mache. So you'll notice as it walks, it's surprisingly silent yeah. for a, for an object of its size, which again was a very conscious piece of sound design, um, which I, I think is incredibly clever. And I really, really like it. I think it's beautiful. Um, I also love that the castle keeps walking, um, even towards the end, where you have it like on a plank with just two oh, legs. Yeah, it hilarious. keeps it's going. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. And then it's it like gets the lovely, of... it gets rebuilt again. It can fly now. Yeah. But again, that again, another Laputa Castle in the Sky sort of reference where mm-hmm. the castle in the sky ends up escaping into the atmosphere and ends the, up um, just out of reach. The second book is actually called Castle in the Air. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Taking a cue from, <laughs> <Yeah>. I wonder. <laughs> All right, then. So I think that about wraps it up, unless there's anything else we want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already. All right, so towards the end of the podcast, what we normally do is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. It be something related to the, po- the uh, episode we just had. It could be something you're enjoying completely random, a book, a film, a podcast, an activity, anything that brings you pleasure or joy. So to give you a moment to think about that, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Uh, I'll recommend two things. I finally got around to seeing Pompoko. Um, <gasps> Yeah, enjoyed it a lot. Um, it is a bit of a mess, but um, but it's uh, it's, it's incredible. I really like the 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 voiceover. I really like like all of the um, the, the the scrotums. The um, <laughs> it had a good bounce to it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and another thing that I'm enjoying at the moment um, that. Um, I was mentioning in a, in a previous or in a future episode that you can now um, <laughs> you can you can now um, join your library and kind of um, listen to um, well you can you can download ebooks and uh, audio ebooks um, audio audio books <laughs> yes there we go um, on um, like on, paper uh, books. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on 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 borrow box, I've been listening to uh, the Taylor of Panama, um, which which I'm enjoying a lot, and it has um, it has that kind of '90s anxiety 
about uh, Japan, a bit like RoboCop 3. <laughs> Obligatory RoboCop reference. Obligatory RoboCop reference. <laughs> uh, all right, and Graham, do you want to go? Yeah, uh, I've been playing mostly video games. Uh, I'm currently playing Vampire, which is a very interesting vampire game um, where it's set in 1918, so right around World War One in London, and you're a vampire, and you're trying to figure out... Um, you know what you are what's going on in london there's an epidemic is it being caused by the vampires is it being caused by other individuals it's really interesting it's a great game and um i've also started playing total war uh shogun uh because it's free on steam and people have only just started to find that out so it's it's a fun way for me to interact with my friends while trying to learn how to play a real-time strategy game and then uh, I was telling the I was telling you two uh, before we started the podcast. I am still buying Gunpla. The collectible... keep in mind it's only been a week. It's only been a week since the last time. You oh were buying god, Gunpla. it has only been a week. Oh no. Uh, so yeah, it's an addiction now. So um, it is. I'm building these Gunpla, and he was stalking the postman for the last two days. Po- okay, for... you were out on the balcony. I was out on the balcony. Okay. He tried to show it us, but it, uh, to us, but it was too yeah. indecent. It, too it indecent. had to be. It had the, to be blurred out for our camera. For some reason, the vi- the video yeah. call did blur out Graham's. Um, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's what I've been doing to to keep to keep some semblance of sanity. Otherwise, I'll annoy breeds to death. <laughs> um, in the spirit of the podcast um i'll recommend my favorite diana Wynne jones book which is the merlin conspiracy which as it fits in with a lot of her themes uh deals with alternate earths hell's moving castle originally has that as well where he also one of the one one when the door switches around you come out one of the doors and he's john howell in a modern day wales Yeah, there's a whole other plot line. <laughs> but um, yeah, The Merlin Conspiracy is probably my favorite from her. Oh, cool. Uh, in terms of recommendations for myself, very briefly, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but I rewatched uh, American Psycho because it's 20 years old last month. Well, yeah, uh, I, I just watched that recently. Yeah, I saw yeah, that it, scene recently. <laughs> it's amazing. The The movie is fantastic. I hardly recommend it. It has aged fantastically well. It feels much better than the last time I watched it about 15 years ago. So I would wholeheartedly recommend that. It is on Netflix if you're in the UK and Ireland and want to check that out. Uh, in terms of other stuff as well, uh, we've been, you know, we've been talking about anime that's all ages appropriate, kind of children's entertainment, but family entertainment as well. So I feel like I might recommend something that looks like children's entertainment, but most definitely isn't. I recently discovered <coughs> Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, uh, which is an online YouTube web series. It's done in the style of Sesame Street and various other children's entertainment. Uh, it is not at all appropriate for children, but it's kind of brilliant. Uh, so don't hug me, I'm scared. There are six episodes online. They're very worth seeking out. If you can only pick one of them, I would recommend the second episode, which is about time. It explains the concept of time for anybody who is having difficulty with that. And I feel like <laughs> we all are having in quarantine. So, so yes. give that one a go as well. Um, all right then, so that kind of wraps up. But if people are looking for a bit more Graham, a bit more Breed, a bit more Andrew online, I know Breed and Andrew aren't online. So Graham, where can we find you? <laughs> Good, because I take up the time of three people. Um, you can find me at Game Air, uh, my video game website, where we uh, report on all the video game news. Currently, we're looking at stuff. Um, Final Fantasy VII Remake uh, is still big news. Uh, I personally did a review recently of it. Uh, 
it was an absolute highlight of my last three weeks in quarantine. <laughs> um, I'm also. Would you go on... so far as to say that you're in Final Fantasy Seventh Heaven? Yeah, oh. why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Thank you know you. what, Jack? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Breed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I've also done reviews for Scanon. We're still going strong, even in a world where we can't go to cinemas. The cinemas are coming to us with films. Uh, recently reviewed a Sea Fever. Uh, yeah. very That's the Nissa Hardy Man one. Yeah. That is. I uh, actually got to watch it with Breed. Yes. And I think, Breed, can, you can say it yourself. That, um, it's one of those films you start watching and you have no idea where this thing is going. And it goes to some very strange places, but it weirdly works. Yeah, yeah it was a great film. It was a great uh, review experience for the two of us. And, uh, and yeah, it reminds me a lot of those kind of 90s movies like Event Horizon or kind yeah. of Supernova, that kind of like, you know, it was kind of schlocky alien homage kind of mm. thing going, which is not except an if it was at all, except if it was based in Ireland. I, yes. I think I only <laughs> I had one major problem with it. She which, is it Duvray she... Scott's accent. Yes! Thank you, thank you. Oh my god, it actually distracted me from the film. Like <laughs> you're watching the story accent. and you get dis- so distracted, you're going. His Scottish accent would be fine. What is he trying to do? Is it Eastern European? Is it? Where's he meant to be from? Is he is just that angry that he didn't get to be Aragorn? Is he? It's, it's great because like the character's wife is like played by Connie Nielsen, who I think is Swedish. Yeah, she just she's keeps Swedish. her Swedish. She just keeps her Swedish accent, and, and it's, it's fine. Yeah, do you know why? Because it's an Irish film. We don't care. And yeah. she adds a slight Irish lilt for like certain Irish kind of phrases, which is yeah. a nice touch. Like it's it's done quite well. But his every time he speaks, I'm out of the film. <laughs> Because I'm not only trying to decipher what he's saying, I'm trying to decipher what accent I'm it's t- meant to I, be. I described it as a frequency. You're listening to a radio frequency with everyone else in the cast, and then he starts talking, and you have to rejigger the frequency to try and understand what he's saying. So it takes you out of the film. So what you're saying is, not great, Scott. Yes. No, yes, yeah, that's pretty much it, yeah. Apart, I'll allow it. But apart from that, very Apart from that, it. the film's great. All right, then. Um, in terms of myself, I'm writing online at The Escapist magazine. You can find me online with a quick Google there. I'm doing a couple of posts there a week. So if you do want to check that out, leave a comment, share it online. That'd be very useful as well. Really appreciate it. The podcast you can find online at Stitcher, at iTunes, on SoundCloud, at The250 online on Twitter. We'll be back next week, hopefully, with Breed and Graham joining us once again to round out anime to talk about A Silent Voice, a new entry on The 250. And perhaps a true romance. But we'll find that out next week. Thanks again, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.